Crash Course Podcast. I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And this week, as we jump more or less right into what we're doing, um, I'm taking us on a trip down Nostalgia Lane because I like torturing my friends. And so instead of going to Copenhagen, we're going to the 80s this week. Yeah, the 80s is a place, right? It is a place place in our collective consciousness. Yeah, in space time. I feel like the 80s, though, exists as a area of the world in which it is constantly sun-soaked and you're always driving down a highway. Regardless of whether oh it's day or night, yes. Somebody read the liner notes. <laughs> or rather the band description. The liner notes are a whole nother matter. What are we doing, Matt? So our album this week I picked at random. I tried to do a similar thing that John and Steve had done in the past. Take a look at Bandcamp and see, hey, what's trending? Maybe there's something worthwhile. And I came across a pop record that had tons of stars and reviews all over the, the, the front page of it saying that it's you know the greatest thing since sliced bread I'm paraphrasing a bit um, and it is the band FM 84 and their newest first full length record Atlas. FM 84 is actually Colin Bennett, well he's the primary composer there have been other featured artists throughout the record as we'll get into but he does most of the work here um, and so it's another case of picking a solo artist who does most of the work behind the scenes in composition and analyzing their work. But what drew me to this, which is what is being dubbed new retro wave, oh, or whatever that is, or new wave retro. Brand new, forward thinking retro wave. Yeah. Um, is that it got rave reviews and it's, po- it's considered pop. And I wanted to pick something that I thought got high praise and also we had zero experience with. Well, it's interesting that you picked it because of the rave reviews, which is interesting because we don't normally ever go to reviews first. Normally, it's just we take the album for what it is. But in this case, maybe you couldn't avoid it. You saw it, and you saw the... I saw it, too, as soon as I saw the Bandcamp page. They they feature it prominently because, of course, it is a debut record, and they want to promote their work. So they're extrapolating from whoever has actually looked at this work and said that it had a lot going for it. But at the same time, I think I would have been drawn to this record simply by the album cover, which is another faux pas that I think we sometimes, we never fell into the trap of on this show, but I've often cited it as being a trap that I fell into off the show. Uh, And so I try to avoid it in my choice of albums on the show. Sure, yeah. And I mean, that also brought me to it. I mean, it's no secret that I do like 80s music, but you know, I have my limits as do most of us. But also anyone who's a longtime listener of the podcast, I do like 80s stuff. And we often on this podcast reiterate are disdain for cheesy 80s synth in albums where it has no place being, like just yeah. random synth. And we do, we do have a, a couple of instances where we lauded throwback 80s stuff. Sure. I can't think of them because but they seem like they, they're very few and far between. But the fact is that we come across 80s-influenced stuff all the time. However, this record is 
80s. Like, it's not influenced. It's steeped yes. in that decade. John's 30-year rule is basically compressed into this one album. Yeah. We're just going back to it, and it is done, but just as the use of, like, nostalgia here and there. A tool, you know, a tool from a different time, which I guess gives you a broad spectrum of music as a whole, you know, just to put you in different time periods, different ways of thinking. I think that's good to, to dip back every once in a while. Um, but on, on a broad scale, it, it does beg a little bit of uh, infatuation with yeah. a certain style. Sun-soaked 80s-inspired cinematic synth-pop from California. Yeah. I mean, 80s-inspired. If the whole entire project, of course this is only debut, so we don't know if he's just going to ditch this idea as of the second album, but in that case he's going to have to ditch that line, because right now that's the selling point to every single person that is seeking out a retrowave uh, artist. Yeah, and sure. at the same time, the album takes a step further. Uh, Atlas is a story of wonder, imagination, dreams, youth, innocence, love, and heartbreak, all captured under the golden light of a fading summer sun. A soaring cinematic journey to the sound of a summer long gone. I, I'm, yeah, I do love the liner notes. Once yeah. again, I think... It's poetic. Yeah, I think it's it's their chance to wax eloquence, although it definitely begs a lot for the album itself. But in this case, being on the other side of that, yeah, I'd say it's fairly accurate. Yeah. Uh, except, that, of course, that it does hint that it's a personal tale, and we don't know exactly what the tale is yet and what his connection to the 80s was, apart from maybe just living in it, like we all did at some point. It, it it doesn't even hint. It, it's saying this is Breakfast Club meets Orange County. Like, that sort of a theme. Or Breakfast Club it gets relocated to Miami Beach. And I, I, I'm going to actually use both of those terms to describe this album during the course of their discussion. But talking about innocence, talking about love and heartbreak and everything like that. The Breakfast Club and everything that, I guess, Molly Ringwall and that, that era of... Uh, teenage heartthrob is it, it's describing it to a T it's describing what the coming of age story was back then yeah but it's not like the music or rather the instrumentation doesn't hint at that so heavily except for uh, association purposes right. we all have all of that filmography you know in our past we've all seen it and so because we have those soundtracks to go along with that filmography then yeah, our brains are going to go back to these things, but there was a time in which that wasn't intuitive. There was a time in which this music was just like, um, yeah, I think maybe this would fit, but it could have been something completely different. But now the question is, has it just been typecast, essentially? Well, I mean, I think that's really heavily connected to nostalgia. I mean, nostalgia becomes... things yeah, for us. And nostalgia, be like the thing that you just said before about us associating with it because of these plethora of movies that's because we're nostalgic for those movies and that sound and that time. Yeah. And that's part of it. If you're not nostalgic for it, then you're likely not to look even back on it fondly at all. It depends, because you would have to have a love for that style of music independent of your knowledge of it, which is harder and harder to do the further back we go. Uh, this sounds like uh, our discussion at the end of Performance by Agecoin just yeah. two weeks ago, in fact, when we discussed, like, how is it, is it possible? Well, of course it's not possible, but it would be a nice thought experiment if we could sort of rearrange our tastes differently and go back to the beginning yeah. and make one different decision, not listen to a certain thing or have a certain suggestion not be brought to us, and then all of a sudden a whole different genre has different connotations for us. Yeah, totally. All right, well, I think we've beaten around the bush enough. Um, uh, to be fair, let's move on to what's quickly becoming one of my favorite segments, because I do happen to love album art a lot. And the album art of this record, based on the descriptions alone, does not disappoint at all. It is 
I well, the best way I can describe it is that it has the general feel that you would get from the '80s doing a sunset, sort of a combination of the forward-looking, almost futuristic style that was trying to permeate society while still remaining very retro, very uh, almost abstract, like the sort of thing that you might have even got back in like the '30s or something of that sort with weirder line work and. Big shoulders on suits for the power suit kind of a look. It's like a combination of angular plus curvature. And that was something that was pretty, pretty big in the 80s artwork. Well, I don't want to undersell the originality, though, of, yeah, specifically what was done in the 80s. <laughs> Barring whatever had already been there to, be to begin with, I do think this was a, a very, very new style. Maybe even just the 70s. The 70s forward, but really, really brought out in the 80s. Specifically the neon feel. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's a thing that even just to stare at this album from a distance, that's what I meant earlier when I said that this album would leap out in a crowd. Not necessarily that I would know what to expect from it, but just the, because of the change in hue as you get closer to the center and the bottom of that circle although it has the, the horizontal lines through it it gets pinker and pinker and pinker like I, I stare at it now and although I know that I'm just looking at a print well I'm actually looking at a screen of a print uh, but that's besides the point it feels like it is backlit in in the image yeah. itself in the graphic and that to me I think is really striking uh, furthermore the horizontal lines it's not just that it just breaks up the sunset, because you think, well, obviously that does break up the sunset, and it kind of takes out the, the realism of it. It makes it into something that is, well, honestly, well, we use the phrase rose-colored glasses a lot, and I, I do think that when you use that phrase, you look back into the past and you fantasize a little bit about it. It changes what it actually was when you were there in the past. And so you look back at it, and it's like, that was a gorgeous sunset, but it's only through the lens of today, because obviously it didn't look like that way at the time. Well, but I would argue that it could look that way at the time if it were over water, because over water, it gives that kind of lined um, effect. Well, the obvious things, of course. Yeah, it, <laughs> being back against the, the sky, you, you would have at least a little bit of a pink sky around it, but instead it just cuts sharply That's from true. the sphere to darkness, yeah. and that is extremely uncanny. That's true. And yeah, then I when, would agree with when that. we go a, another step into the horizontal lines, this is more of a, a nostalgic connection for me. It reminds me of logos from the yeah, 80s. Absolutely. Um, a lot of times they just chose like abstract, you know, circles with uh, various shades of this or that. And I don't know, I just remember so many things that utilized that horizontal line scheme. Uh, like it would appear on, on the cover of like a blank VHS tape or something like that. Sure. Brands that were around, uh, Scotch, TDK, logos like that. Just very simplistic, straightforward logos that the second you looked at it, you knew what you were buying. Yeah. And I think that for me, you mentioned briefly earlier that you weren't even sure necessarily what to expect just looking at the album artwork. And I might be inclined to disagree just because I'd read the three-line bio of this band of and course. pretty much went, oh, that's 80s. Yeah. So 80s. Yeah, I see that. But my critique is going to be, the only thing missing is, is, is some sort of wireframe mountain, maybe a palm tree <laughs> or something like that, because this is not an unusual artistic style. No, it's not. You Google 80s sunset and it, it's, 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 oh, it's all over the place. This exact same like frame of reference of put lines in a sun. Which or, makes me think there's a common artist here. I don't know. Somebody who did it originally and then it all got sort of transformed or maybe it's, it's straight up connected and this is actually an old piece of artwork. I don't know. It, it there's that possibility. Also, um, it's, it's not that I really think I can pin down a specific origin for this sort of artwork, but it was the sort of thing that was seen on everything from T-shirts and album covers to 
uh, early uh, graphics, especially during racing games. You would have seen that off in the distance kind of a thing on the cover with the, you know, the, the highly pixelated but state-of-the-art for the time, kind of a look of a Ferrari or something of that sort. If there was it, a feeling that I get from this, it first of all, very carefree, just the fact mm-hmm. that most people are attracted to sunsets in some form. But then beyond that, uh, almost just shy of utopian. Yeah, I would say. I mean, there's, it, there's a purity and an innocence to this imagery, which is unsurprising that people are relating yeah. to that because you can draw a lot from this picture. Which I think is why you have the horizontal lines to break it up because, well, of course, utopian society as we see it today is not really possible and probably won't be possible for a very long time, in which case that uncanny quality about it probably rings true. It's a, it's a world we will not see. I don't know if I would go necessarily that far, but Mm. the purity I do see with nothing actually in front of it. I did mention cars and mountains and palm trees. This one actually just is a sun, and I'm going to definitely agree, either rising or setting on water. I would say that... Definitely that kind of thing. I get the ripple effect, and I would actually say that... I, I always took that these these kind of a breakup in the coloration and the flow of a piece because in the artwork itself, like I said, first time I saw it, looked like the 80s. And it always looks like heat to me as yeah. like heat coming off of ground or body of water distorting the actual view of the sun. Yeah. I do want to say it's also a curious choice that they do have the band name in the top left-hand corner but no album name, which is curious. I well, mean, unnecessary, I guess. It's nothing unusual. Yeah. I mean, if you are going to be putting a, a piece of art out there musically, you don't necessarily need the name to be the prominent piece. I guess it's just rare that if an album has a title and the band's name is listed, that the album title isn't. But, yeah, I mean... Uh, white Album. The ba- It says beat... Uh, well, because there's no album name to that. The White Album... It's not actually called The White Album. But I can also point to a huge variety of especially punk and metal albums that are just uh, some sort of iconography. Yes, We but, talked about this recently. But those albums don't have titles. This has a title. No, no. I'm talking about albums with titles. Oh, they okay. are merely just a picture. Even if mm. they do have the band name, usually discreetly, just like this one is, off to the side, out of the way, and in an area of... The artwork where it is plain, as in mm-hmm. just a solid color or something like that. You put something just right there to be, okay, this is a product by yeah. A, or a product by B, or a compilation between A and B. But if you are going to be presenting, especially early in your career, a specific album, two ways to go about it is one, to be just a little bit oblique, a little bit outside the box, and just here's art to represent the album. The other one is to be, here's the title of the album right there in your face. Both ways work as marketing, so both ways are completely viable in this case. I'm going to propose just one other possibility, and that's, well, I mean, just for the horizontal line scheme, that the origin of that may have actually come out of the fact that, you know, when you were filming things, especially when they were broadcast on television, you would have that the scanning would result in that every other line Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so if you had a still shot, you know, very often you could see the fact that they only at any given moment, uh, on a pause, for instance, you would only see every other line in a single frame. I think it was called interlacing, and that's that's maybe what results in that scheme. So, of course, it has to do with the technology that was available at the time, and thus you have a very, very uh, era-specific piece of artwork. Sure. I mean, I think any of them are viable at this point. <laughs> you know, I'm just expressing why I like old technology, so I, I think enough. that might... At the end of the day, we all agree this is a very 80s album cover and is very appropriate for this album. Well, we're not going to be dropping the term 80s, because as we go into track one, everything off of Atlas, uh, you're going to hear some 80s, and then you're going to hear some more 80s, 
Uh, I noticed in sort of a quick 4-4, kind of a 4-4 80s groove with some 80s undercurrents. 80s! Actually, let's get serious for as long as we can take anything seriously within these first few seconds of this first track. Clearly this composer is serious, so let's try to talk about the layering. Um, the rhythm, for instance, is of course a drum machine. Did you expect yeah. that? That's very 80s. Um, it was overused, I think, in that decade, and that's because it was the new toy in the block. Obviously, we still have a strong connection to it, to the drum machine, but there's a certain timbre here, a certain touch that just links you, connects you back to the decade. I'm just going to talk about the rhythm of this uh, very briefly, because of course, we get only four bars of only drum machine right before we get a whirlwind of synth action. So let me just nitpick for a second. One, e, two, and three, four. Uh, e, and two, and three, four. One, e, two, and three, four. Uh, e, and two, and e, uh, and a. Like, see, hear that? Those little yeah. things in there? It, it's actually a little bit awkward for this time using the one E and a two E and a system, but it's actually the best system to verbally divide beats down to the semi quaver, i.e., 16th note. Uh, but notice how I did not vocalize the final three nor the final four. You know, my snapping is always the beat, so that was snapping the three and the four, but the drum machine's faux snare, I guess we'll call it that, does not really play on the beat there. It, it After I snap the three, the beat comes in on the very second 16th note, the E, and then the last. 16th note, the uh of the beat three bracket, just before the final pickup, which uses the and and the uh of the fourth beat. But during that third beat, that temporary shift away from accenting either on the beat or on the and, and instead just using the e and the uh, the second and fourth semiquavers, is in all seriousness a fairly advanced form of syncopation. Been done to death as intro material, but momentarily, just momentarily promised cool little rhythmic figurations that frankly never come to fruition on this track. The rest of the track is almost ceaselessly one E and a two, and a three E and a four, and a one E and a two, and just over and over and over again. And occasionally they will repeat that little same trick, that little lead-in trick that I just described later on as we introduce various other, not sections, but layers in the midst of this track. It was the use of the kick on that two and four. Yeah. That really got to me. Kick. I See, I call it a faux snare, but honestly, it does have the it's, force it's like a of, kick a, of, a tick, yeah. of a kick, yeah. It's it's just that it's it's a little it's a bit of a, <laughs> of a muffled reverb that you would kind of get from something down low out of the way and yeah. a little bit deeper. I know it sounds silly to break it's all this insistent. up because we've all heard it. We've all heard this stuff before, but I'm trying to break it down because that's exactly why I've heard it before. When you <laughs> isolate each and every one of these things uh, down from the rhythmic patterns to the overall tone of it itself, I, it, I, I would hesitate to use the word ubiquitous so early, but remember, sun-soaked, 80s-inspired cinematic synth pop from California, so he's bringing it all back for the sake of this album. And... To pair up with this very safe beat, persistent beat. We're going to call it a persistent beat. Yes. The hi-hat. That got to me yeah, that's, very, very quickly. That's the one E and a two, three E and a four thing. Because it um, became uh, significantly background when the kick starts really coming in after those first four measures. So it doesn't really do much besides meld into everything else to sort of fall beneath everything else. Right. Sort of like the opposite of what you would expect a hi-hat to do, I guess. It's very non-committal. Yeah. It's very out of its way. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's it's just always there, too, at the same time. And that ringing, it, it doesn't do a lot for me. Well, what we're establishing at this juncture is that the rhythm holds it down. And that's about all it does. If we're just talking about the rhythm, we can get to other aspects. Well, sure. I mean, talking at length about the instrumentation maybe at this point the synths <laughs> the synths um 
this track is instrumental. We haven't mentioned any lyrics because there are none. Um, this album, as I'd say, a 50-50 splint of lyrics to no lyrics. And when singers come in, it's guest singers. Um, the main composer does not sing himself. I do, the the rhythm aside and establishing it it as it is, I thought the progression in the beginning of the song was, was kind of fun and easy to get caught up in. It's... It's this kind of oh, driving great. momentum that you would expect in any kind of highway scene in an 80s movie. It's pleasing. And yeah. again, a lot of that may be from association. I imagine we'll yes. be having these discussions a few times. Um, so to say that it's 80s, well, let's just set that aside for the moment. It's, right. It, musically, it's just two big, fat, comforting chords. Well, That's yeah. the, what we get for a while here. We get eight measures of what sounds like a, a keyboard in the background. And then at 38 seconds in, we do start adding a little bit more energy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's not really a figuration. Well, actually, it kind of is uh, because we don't really have a melody yet, I would say, but it's kind of got this pitter-patter going on. This sort of right, but it's in the high register this time. We're not talking about rhythm. That's just what the rhythm of it is doing. So you might say that maybe the rhythm is bolstered by a couple of the other things going on because because we don't get melody so soon in this piece, then they might as well they're just their own rhythm. It's just, it's not the rhythm section. It's other stuff doing rhythmic things. That itself is kind of interesting. It's it's like you can visualize these oversized animated electrons bouncing off walls because it's that so high pitch. And of course, because of the lively and yet dated nature of this, I tend to visualize sort of an old instructional video over there. It's also it's it's um, uplifting. It's trying to make you feel like you are being taken care of. Maybe an instructional video like something computer related, uh, like how to manage your portfolio using Apple II's market manager software. First, connect the included adapter to any of available DB25 SCSI ports. Great, now reboot. <laughs> and you're just sitting there in your khaki pants, grinning like a pig in shit. He's so happy to reboot his, uh, to, to manage his portfolio. He's so happy he forgot to pick up his kids at school one day. He's neglecting his wife. She turned to alcoholism. <laughs> I'm getting all of this from this particular track. I wanted to keep going because uh, yeah. this is, I didn't hear any of this. This, I know, hear, yeah. this is my heard, visualization. What I actually I heard story. was, um, Electric piano comes in, does something four times. And then we get another layer for four measures. Then we get another layer <laughs> for four measures. And then we go through a break where we go back down to just the beat and maybe one of those previous layers are going to show up and be kind of muted this time. But we go for four layers. Yep, you don't break away from four because four is a comfort zone. And that's why I feel it as being the backdrop to something of an, an uplifting instructional nature because they don't want to set, you don't want at any point for you to feel like, whoa, I'm confused, you know, or it, to make it feel like it is speaking above you, whether it is or isn't, that is neither here nor there. Well, it's just comforting music. We'll also think about old, at least for me, when I worked in retail way back in the day when I was your age. Um, a lot of the instructional videos and training videos, because we had them on VHSs back then, did have kind of bright and kind of really shiny music and, and rhythms and um, with the, melodies with because they they wanted to invoke positivity and trust, and that's what this song is trying to precisely. do. Precisely. Let me let me try to do it like a like a kind of a noise to introduce you and everything like that. Something bright, something tinny, something on the higher register is just like a blanket 
tone. That's like the opening logo thing? Yeah, yeah, opening logo, like, welcome to the establishment of such and such. Let's get right into it now. Except that the funny thing is that that caliber material I always found to be just slightly more experimental because it had to be linked to the brand. But the funny thing is that the way I was visualizing the rest of this track as being, you know, in the midst of the video, in the midst of the instructional video, because you're, it's just the background stuff. They would port it out to other composers, write things maybe specifically for them, but very rarely usually just be some kind of general music library, that an organization that that they write to, and then they do a deal with the organization. It's, it's very, you know, you re- very rarely have the composer's name linked to the work. Um, it was just stuff they could churn out, which is a type of composition. I don't want to belittle it, but that's more how I see this. Uh, it's not as flashy, actually, as the, uh, the opening theme or the logo that you're describing. Well, I think for me right now, the story you're describing is more interesting than what we actually have here. Um, I I would say that I had fun with the first track, and I thought as far as an introduction to this album, it seemed pretty appropriate. I I wasn't thrown for any surprises, but I don't think I was horribly disappointed at this point. I just would have liked for it to break from the expectation a little bit, and it didn't really. I was actually... It it did, but in a weird way for me, because I was almost expecting like a Beverly Hills Cop do 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 breakdown on this, where it actually does. Really, go we're, into, we're referencing uh, Axel F already. Uh, yes, specifically because that is actually kind of the intro a little yeah, bit. That's, yeah, that's basically true. what I broke down. Yeah. Like not quite the same syncopation, but very similar. But, but specifically to go into some sort of melody, to go into something that was a little bit. Bigger, built on top of it, yeah, instead of a theme. There's not a theme here. <laughs> that's it. That's what's really missing because it's what what would be part of the melody range is still too rhythmic to really be a melody. Well, it's not the kind of I guess it's not the kind of music that warrants a theme. Instead, what we get is sort of different cycles of things. We, the, of course, the a descending chord progression invariably returns throughout the work. We do have kind of a hazy melody, I would say, maybe around the one-minute mark. That distant chime-like sensation that really gets blurred in the background is kind of like the melody to me. It's, it's like a chime drenched in reverb that has similar overlapping timbres as the adjacent material. Thus, it's not a very prominent melody. And then maybe... Uh, a minute and 40 seconds in, another synth steps in, and this is just, at this point, this was like synth overdose, because this is the bright harpsichord-like sensation. I mean, the harpsichord element of it has kind of been made unrecognizable, uh, except for the fact that it just kind of smears over everything in, in the manner that you'd expect a, a harpsichord sort of to do. It both blends and stands out at the same time, so it's just that, but a little more electrified. I wouldn't even say that it stands out. It doesn't... It doesn't take a prominent role, and here's where the, the my complaint about theme goes to the next level. Nothing is getting mixed to a prominent theme. Nothing gets mixed to a prominent level. Everything is very steady and very within the same range, volume volume wise, which means that the that background electric piano that I heard earlier felt like it was just as loud as the brighter tinny stuff, even though the bright tinny high register pieces definitely are more piercing it's not leaving me with any sort of like idea to latch onto as the individual well this is where listening environment may come into play because i it did stand out to me as sort of a prominent feature like the most prominent thing yet without a theme it was a prominent instrument on a headphones listen but then when we were sitting in a group it is true it didn't really it didn't really come out on speakers it just kind of blended with everything else so uh 
one would argue, yeah, this is the case for a focused listen, but also there are other problems that would result from a focused listen with this material. Um, one being the fact that there are a lot of repetitions, a lot of cycles, lots of groups. <coughs> yeah, it returns to itself many a time, and then when we get to the end, the kind of problems that John is citing get kind of more pronounced because it becomes more of a cluster towards the end with just layer over layer and then them all playing in unison at the same volume until the track ends. Also, there are defined endings left and right here and I actually would have liked some blend and transition because I feel like sim the pieces have enough similarities that if we kind of flowed evenly from narrative from moment to moment like it's larger a larger piece with moments that might forgive some of the similarities. But it just keeps going. I yeah. mean, the last stretch of this is a, a near-identical string of four-bar mm -hmm. patterns. Yeah. Four bars each, maybe four or five elements or so, um, except for like the fact that the very last note of the piece just fades poignantly into the night, which of course it does. Of course. I mean, it's the rest of it is all just uh, chord rounds, blissfully maybe with a hint of solemnity because those are the sounds of everyday life. And then, by the way, the track that we forget is called Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that you will be dealing with. And in everyday life, there will be challenges because we at the Self-Help VHS program believe you can overcome these challenges. I feel like I, you could just narrate like anything. Into an infomercial. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what's happening. That's the way I felt after I was listening to this. I, it was. It just. It felt like I had heard it before, or that I wanted to say, "Hey, if this is not working for you, you know, the composer on on, a, on an actual independent album scale on an indie music scale, then submit it, submit it, because there would be uh, companies out there that would love to have this stuff." That very well may. Be, but let's let's take a step in the next direction because we do get a little bit of a shift in the next track as far as um, track two, Running in the Night, which features Ollie Ride. The shift is vocals. I think that would be well, the major... It's not, it's not just vocals, though. There's an environmental shift. I felt more sunshine and brightness in the last track, whereas here, it's more of a kind of sunsetty nighttime Yeah, and feel. let's let's get before, just before the vocals, because you don't really get a sense of that at first. You know, there's a, there quite a few bars where it is just the, the, the running sensation called yeah. running in the night, and it's exactly what you feel. And there's no, like, clever syncopation here. It no. is actually just really you know one and two and three and four and it just you're you you feel the regularity of it and uh by the time the vocals do start honestly we don't really have that much going on in the background it's just the keyboard with a little bit of light comping but otherwise it's really just the rhythmic component that is dominating and when the vocals do come in they're of course drenched in reverb and echo because uh, yeah. why wouldn't it be that said though i do really like uh, Ollie's singing. I think that to me it's reminiscent of bands like um, M83 who we've done on the show. Oh, M83 comes up a lot I think in this uh, In this, it's going to come up a lot I think in this whole episode because of the fact that well, episode 193 when we dealt with their album Junk, it was sort of a specific look at forgotten themes. The kinds of themes that would be used in just the context that I described, you know, or maybe even like for a 13-episode run of a show that, just, uh, 1984, that never really got off the ground. Things that were used, but then just forgotten. And the com uh, the composer of M83, he felt like there was a connection there. That was the kind of material that begs to be appreciated, almost like finding something in the trash. And that's why he called the album junk. And I actually thought that was an inter interesting statement. It's just that, you don't really have the statement here yet. It's more just like a revisitation. Right, but and the point, but I was getting to as far okay. as vocalists is that there's a vocal similarity to this, and even the band Hello Goodbye that we did much earlier on, because both singers are heavily influenced by '80s synth sounds, but they built on them or did some turn them on their head a little bit. Whereas here, it's pretty straightforward. 
for me, this is one of those situations that I brought up earlier in other reviews when it would happen, and that is uh, the vocalization that's going on is something that is like an immediate turnoff for me because it feels like, to go back in time, the plastic microphone, the echoey Toys R Us toy that you get that when you talk into it, both adds a little bit of reverb and a lot of echo to your voice. It sounds like a poor man's Darth Vader toy. Well, I would disagree that it sounds cheap, except maybe for the fact, again, that because we've heard it so many times, you'd almost feel it as being as ubiquitous as something you could pick up in the store. But I, I do have one little note on that, since both of you are commenting on the vocals. I, I think the vocals themselves are, are good. Yes, um, yes and, I will agree with that. And the reverb, it's true, does kind of set him back a bit and makes him less prominent than he could be. Uh, and I, I guess this is where I would almost want to bring up a little bit of a statement on reverb itself, because I, I realize it's starting to sound at this point like I'm anti-reverb, and I'm not. I, I love reverb. Reverb makes almost everything sound grander and often sound better, but that's just it. It makes things sound better, and I'm not saying that the reverb here is masking an average singer. I just said he's good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it leaves songs with very few places to go. Yeah. Uh, kind of like how you never want to start off too fast or too loud or you know various other extremes that we tend to connect best with when they are built towards. And because this kind of just starts off with all this reverb right in front, you can't really take that up a notch. The best thing you could do is kind of shave it off. Maybe go the inverse route, but that's that's not how we traditionally enjoy music. But And yet this is a very traditional track, all things considered. So you, you throw me in two different directions. It would actually was showcased very starkly during the pre-chorus of this piece, where the uh, rhythm section would actually drop out for either half of the whole piece of this pre-chorus, and you would just hear the vocals kind of, like, purified, kind of in a secular kind of moment. So much of the music actually does drop out that it's, it's almost like there's nothing else going on. And that's where I really discovered I did not like the reverb, but I did like the vocalist himself. Yes. I did actually like his voice. It just felt like, yeah, where do you go from there? Uh, everything feels like it's it's shouting into the wind. And shouting into the wind is great when you have something important to say. But when you make it the blanket statement for everything you're trying to say, it it... it in my opinion, weakens it as a whole. Yeah, but I think we're we're kind of oversimplifying the vocal description because there are moments where he does, like in the chorus, he's more belty, he's more pronounced, he hangs on notes, and I think the performative nature of the singing is where it really shines. Even if you're not super into the reverb or anything else, he does know how to sing and performatively sing to stretch notes, um, expand on notes, rise and fall, and I think that's where I really got into it. I agree with all of that, but I think there's a big reason why those moments in particular stand out to you, and that's the chords. Yeah, Which is the one thing agree. we haven't really mentioned is, of course, if the rhythm's not really doing anything for you in this track, which it doesn't, and if the melody is not as big as it could have been because of the reverb, which I do feel, the then yeah, yeah, I gravitate toward, uh, well, specifically the chords beneath those melodies themselves. And yeah. those are the moments in which you, uh, you, f you really feel the power in the melody, despite how pushed back it may sound. And you get moments like, well, in the chorus, oh, I'm running in the night so soon, I've got nothing left to lose. I really like the pivot on that particular line. And then also a little bit further down, uh, but whatever we do, this is like the, the penultimate line of the chorus, but whatever we do, I'm running in the night with you. 
but specifically over the, the that word whatever but whatever we do and then the chord changes right there a really classic pivot back to the beginning kind of wrapping up the story uh, sort of a quaint story being told here I, I mean if you look deeper into the lyrics well you're not gonna get that deep you're just gonna get lines that I, I mean e any one of these lines could come across as a little bit thinking that we would last forever uh, don't know what you're thinking of <laughs> you were wild trying to set yourself free all these kind of vagaries that I they don't really affect me in one way or another because I just feel these are the these stereotypical problems we associate with relationships and overcoming and then coming together again I just don't really know but at least it wraps itself up yeah I mean I think I'd say thematically it's supposed to represent the innocence of love maybe but sure. again that's very still very broad um, I will say instrumentally though once we get further into the song and we hit the slow down bridge moment it's that's textbook yeah and irritating and things that we pooped all over andrew mcmahon for i specifically pooped all over uh, on fair, that and fair enough. well i um, sort of foreshadowed this because remember i said before that well most things start a little bit softer they get yeah. big and you hit your climax well this is kind of your anti-climax yeah. and of course this is the bridge two minutes and 54 seconds it just takes it down a notch and I guess that's the opposite of what most bands would do in this particular circumstance we break it down we get soft and then we build back up and it, yeah. it still comes across as a little bit cliche so go listen to that previous episode episode number 233 and listen to any one of those complaints and they're kind of applicable here It's it's a lot of very safe versions of doing a rebuild. But I would say overall for this song for me, I did enjoy it because the vocals were enough to let me enjoy it. But that's also comparing it to the previous track that felt like work after most of it. I would be... I, I want to be there. But the similarities between the first and second track, you said sunrise to sunset, and that feels like... That was the only tonal shift for me. Yeah, because it was Both the only tonal shift. <laughs> it was. It was. You're going from driving in a 1980s Ferrari to a 1980s Firebird. Like that's your day car versus your night car. Yeah. That was like it. That was like the only major difference. Even a little bit of a loss of horsepower uh, to keep going with this metaphor. But it's too similar. I mean the. BPM feel like they were the same. Well, yeah, I think for me the only that, difference was the vocals. That's what stood out for me. That did not that, that thing. The vocals, yeah. the vocals showing up and actually having a bridge. Yeah, as much as it's a tried and true bridge, it's still a bridge is breaking something. We didn't up get that as much. Yeah, in the instead track. of continuous rebuilds. Yeah, that but, all, all that does is makes it a song. You know, yeah, but that's not that's not a very high bar. And all things considered, I can't really say this is a very good song. I think it's an okay song. I never said it was good. Time. Said I enjoyed it. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, I'm going to say okay. It's just it, the reason it's only okay is because it's painfully predictable. It just really belonged in another era and I, maybe would have been a popular song in its day. I don't know. And because I can't get one track one and track two separated from one another, like I did not enjoy this anymore. Well, that was the big enough. thing. I just, right. it was like we saw the whole day in two tracks. Where do we go from here? Track three. Tears, um, which is another instrumental track, uh, which I, I appreciate the fact that they're alter seemingly alternating here, although that doesn't continue, but be that as it may. Um, oh, but let's keep the illusion alive for just a moment Just here. a moment. But I will say that at least the start of the song uh, instrumentally is a little different as the symbols... The cymbal sound that we get here sounds more physical than anything else before. All the drum work and all the percussion it sounded very... Uh, fabricated. Whereas here, there was a tinniness to it, which 
did make it stand out a little bit. It is more hi-hat. Don't yeah. get me wrong. It is more hi-hat. But at least with this kind of an introduction, we start getting, I want to say a theme. We start getting a little bit more character right up front with the piece itself because it's not just a safe, tried-and-true drumbeat to, you know, lure us in or try to lure us in. It's actually something a little bit different. We're getting a different texture, and that is not what I actually expected after the last nine minutes. Well, that is the big thing, is that it's a different... It's not just the fact that it's a different texture, and it's not just the fact that we eventually introduce a theme. The big thing is, of course... Uh, despite the focus of the album, temporarily escaping the illusion of, of 80s-centric themes, of 80s-centric anything, right? Which the whole album is supposed to be building towards, despite the fact that you know it's a brand new album, it's composed now, it's almost like it's trying to present the illusion that it's from another era. But I was already liking this because the setting suddenly here was not so fixed. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say this is novel in any way, but this is sort of an amorphous sound for the past 30 years. It was... Certainly novel in the 80s, but that said, there's nothing stopping this from hitting the radio yesterday. Uh, to a lesser extent, there's nothing stopping this album from hitting the radio yesterday, because as we've discussed before, the fetishization of the 80s, I think, is pretty widespread. But to market the album as fresh, no one here, certainly, and I think most people, even in the re- recording industry, has any misgivings about that whatsoever. They wouldn't market it as fresh, they'd mark- market it as retrowave, as we've discussed before. Um, but the intro of this track here is smack dab in the light alternative category and that has broader implications it means it can go to a lot of different areas of what people like it doesn't have to be the specific niche so from everything from the open patter of what yeah i would say sounds like a real hi-hat you mentioned a hi-hat before it doesn't even sound uh, uh like a drum machine hi-hat it sounds right. like it sounds like it's a physical instrument it could be fooled here um but from that down to the keyboard we've we've switched the setting we've switched all the settings here on the keyboard everything is just in a different place and there's something so much less boxy about this particular drenched sound everything on the album is drenched in some form or another but in the previous two tracks i can see the pixelated ocean and here it's not pixelated we have higher resolution and i think that's what i find so pleasing about the beginning even even down to the guitar which of course is in its you know little rolling pattern just feels pure light alternative it, it even feels modern i'm gonna say that at least about that one instrument uh one more thing that is kind of on the on the line here but i hear it as being very modern is a sort of clipping sensation something more towards the right ear uh it's just this beat that's being clipped or perhaps even played backwards you know so it it, it, it concludes in an attack and you hear that shoop sound. So that's the attack at the very, very end there. It's why it almost sounds like it's being played backwards. You don't really hear that so much in the 80s, or at least the decade did not slap a copyright on it. You'll find it anywhere today, I hear, as being a very, very modern element. But Eat Your Heart Out is all temporary. It's all temporary because 23 seconds in, the illusion is gone, the aforementioned synths invade, and it soon became texturally indistinguishable from the previous two tracks. Which is interesting because, for reasons that I'll get to, this track actually ended up becoming one of my favorite tracks on the album. I would say the only thing that is a little different is that the we've had heavy kick in previous tracks, but here there's a sonorous vibe to it. I called it a, a, a sonorous electro thud because there's a reverberation or after effect on the initial thud of this kick that does make it sound a little different. That said, blended with everything else, it doesn't really stand out for very long. But I just kind of enjoyed the t- 
timbre and resonance of that sound. There's also an element that shows up multiple times, which is like a long high pitch that shows and kind of blankets on top of everything else, but it still remains actually background. And this is actually this is a this is a track that doesn't have the volume problem I was getting earlier, where th- elements felt like they were all just at the same level. This feels like there is a foreground and a background. So that background pitch adds a little bit of a mystique to it and sort of... That's at 48 that a, seconds. Yeah, that I, built I, upon a theme by itself. It was kind of a drone, you know. Yeah. It, it, there's, and I, when we have that single tone, it was almost like there is the beginning of a musical story being told because yeah. a single tone hadn't held for so long uh, on the album yet. Um, Which then leads into the bright synths that do blanket a lot of it. But because of that lead-in, because I'm actually feeling like there's a theme within themselves, maybe a lot more uh, knowledge of some sort of melody going on right here, even though it is kind of cluttered, and it keeps peeking in the same spot. And that's something I'll get to in just a moment. But it was definitely a lot more pleasant than anything I've heard in the previous two tracks. I liked the first real crescendo, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, but by like the eighth, that's where I started to just start, just pull out my hair, because it goes through a four, four, four. Four measures in four, four times. And that's how they keep going through the same motions of low, mid, upper, mid, high, low, mid, upper, mid, high. And it's this kind of repetition that really, really got to me the story after like three of, and a half, four minutes. The story of this whole track is not nearly as simple as that because of the fact that we have so many different, you know, tease and withdraw, tease and withdraw. Because, For instance, that from that 48-second mark that I brought up and that you brought up, you know, there's definitely a little bit of exposition in that to me. You know, it's just after the little hook sway that I originally called like texturally indistinguishable um, from the previous two tracks that was sort of between like 23 seconds and 48 seconds in then of course for the duration I'm not expecting much at all but then as of 48 seconds oh okay we we ditched everything except for just that a pulsing bass and that ominous boxy drone just a long tone that varies in volume but sticks around for several measures on end and then of course we do build it back up again well, again, not really expecting much at this juncture either. We have the chimes, we got the pitter-patter, blah, 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 blah. Enter, was... Then enter the minute and 33 second mark. Yes. This is the next soft part. This is the soft part that made me think that this is just where it was at on this track. Everything is all about the soft parts. I don't mean to like just dismiss these sort of chorusy instrumental segments, but they do nothing for me at this stage. <laughs> I don't need them because this right here, 1 minute 33, is the best part yet. It's the same synth from the beginning, but now it's very echoey, and it bounces off the left and the right ear with every short motive, and then beneath that you got this cheap bass, which is sort of ominous in itself because of the, the, the spacing here, just the 4, 1, 2, three, four, one, dun, dun, you know. I, I, all these things take me back to various little elements of 80s media that I guess I do have associations with and emotional connections with in one way or the other. But the part really began to get tasteful to me, despite the fact that you have cycles and you have loops and you have all the things in four, like you said before. It got tasteful because of the exchange between the, uh, a variety of things taking place that just sort of edge their way in. They don't get dropped in a single moment. There was no single beat where I was like, ah, new layer. No, it's it's electric guitar, what 
sounds like an acoustic guitar as well or something close in timbre that just slip in with little ditties here and there. I, I really started to enjoy this, um, especially in the middle por portion of this track. And the overarching synth at the top, I really like the end of its particular loop where it sort of seesaws and rocks its way all the way to the top, the, the uppermost synth. And when you feel the end of that segment, then you feel like that's that's the end of this particular set of stories being told, of overlapping stories, which I think, for once, uh, so far in this album, was really, really well told. I just would... I agree with most of that, but I feel like even still, this track eventually does repeat on itself. It does come back to home. It doesn't stay that uh, unique throughout, because we do get the similar elements to come in later. And... It's not just that it's repeating on itself. Whether or not it does, there's too many elements that just never leave. The percussion being one, the rhythm section being one. It does become pretty regular. Yeah, it's a, and it's a climax that gets hit, and that's yeah. where I just want to disagree with Matt. It's not that we return home. We went somewhere, but we stayed there. Yeah, we moved. Yeah, yeah we you're moved. right. Okay. It's, it's great, like I say, the first four times, but this is a five-minute and 35-second track. What you described takes up two and a half minutes, we have three-ish minutes of just the same. Yeah, it plateaus. Just the same. It doesn't return or, to home, it plateaus. No, it, it doesn't even plateaus, but it becomes the same exact wave crashing over you over and over again. I liked it the first few times. But the plateau is just that we don't go anywhere from that same wave. It's not like we just hit the high and stay in the high. That's the one distinction I want to make. It's the motions that are just way too similar over and over again that I just cannot get behind. But it's subtler this time around because of the intricate composition between those few things. Maybe I shouldn't go so far as to say that because we are still dealing in loops. It's just that they mask themselves. In they mask the, themselves in, in a lot the, better. In the, the intro and, and the exit of one particular thing. Um, and they all kind of stay there to the end. This is analogous to the problem that I felt on uh, track number, either track number four or five. The track was called Damp on performance by AIDS Coin just two weeks ago. It was equivalent because of the fact that that track had this giant beat drop. I felt like it was the great uh, culmination on the album. So actually it was about the same amount of time into the album before we got that big reveal. And I was yeah. just like, great great, now what's going to happen? I actually was thoroughly enjoying it for about two minutes on end every single time until I was like, come on, now where's the next thing? That's about the experience that I had here, but actually on a slightly uh, less dramatic scale because this track is not nearly as long. That track was like eight minutes. Yeah. This is five minutes, um, and we we probably start reaching that climax somewhere in the two mark. Uh, so we, in the end, it's like three minutes of stuff. I, yeah. I just... There's more that could have been done, but this is easily the best yet. Yeah, no, I would absolutely emphatically agree with that. I think that as we move on to Chasing Yesterday, we start to get we get a smattering of unique ideas that don't seem to really develop. So here, on the start of the song, we get the most close to a physical stringed instrument, the steel guitar-esque sound here. It's not actually a steel guitar, steel string guitar, I don't think, but it definitely sounds like it, the way it tinnily rings out as it's struck. I might be poised to say that this is genuinely new. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, I would agree. Even not apart from like the adult contempo stuff from the beginning here, that steel acoustic effect, just marching along with the eighth notes, uh, almost hypnotically, um, mm -hmm. especially since you have the same tone 
uh, in each ear that feels independent, if that makes any sense. Like, like there were actually two guitars, and one was panned to the left, and one was panned to the right. They're playing the same thing, but they aren't clones. Right. That's the sensation. But it could also be that uh, the same track is simply being shifted slightly apart from each other, and then panned, and thus you get the same effect. Uh, then we add the synths. Uh, of course we do. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, they're better here. Yeah. I did enjoy them a lot more right here. And, and the we, bass we line. We, pa- we have pauses in the midst. Well, and the bass line that shows up actually is a lot more enjoyable because it's doing the rhythm section's main job, and I like the actual warmth associated with it. That's after the pause. Like, we, yeah. we pause at 21 seconds in, just to think. <laughs> Stare just up at the sun, at, at that setting sun for a moment. And uh, it, it, But I think because of that pause, you start to feel a little bit of a vastness to this track, but then by the time we get the bass line in here, and yeah. we actually get uh, melodic material. By, by I think by 45 seconds in, though, I had to withdraw the newness uh, line. I, I think this kind of returned to full adult contempo, light alternative, or insert more safe genre names that I'm not opposed to in the slightest. They all serve a purpose. And I think actually are more skillful than people give them credit for. It's just that they operate at a different speed than the rest of us and kind of go under the radar as a result. Uh, I'm not going to say this, is, this isn't this is background music, but I am going to say that maybe sometimes background music is more uh, often more than it appears. Sorry about that philosophical aside. Yeah, in the middle of our song. <laughs> um, but no, I also want to talk about actually here the, the percussion, the kick that I was talking about in the previous track that kind of reverberated out um, returns here, but in a more regular pacing. It's, you know, just doom, doom. Doom, doom. It was Actually, being utilized in a way that was familiar to previous tracks, even though it was a sound I associate with the last. Well, track. that's why I brought up what I just brought up because I when I, to say that like background music is often more than it appears. Um, it, it's because. There are things that I think are more than they appear here, and there are also things that are less than they appear. Yeah. You just brought up one, one which is clearly less, and the bass, again, also much less. It's just dun-dun-dun-dun. I yeah, don't gets feel replaced. anything from it. That's, that's what I didn't like, the, the replacement of the bass with the drum setting. And this major shift in the rhythm did decrease a lot of what it had going for it. Right. The Which... other things was a slight figuration with the guitar work that's in this initial that's drum section. thing that is more than it appears for sure. It was really, really cool. It's kind of a rolling I, guitar pattern. I love how it actually does seem to get utilized later on with the synth work. Actually, not playing every note, but playing off of those notes that were first presented here. But the guitar doesn't have anything going for it past that initial configuration it doesn't allow it doesn't gain any prominence throughout the piece it doesn't become what i really wanted which was the central point of the melody itself because i liked that little adjustment to it that little sort of just preview of what was to happen but because it doesn't go anywhere itself it only informs later synth uh high-end parts doesn't really actually do anything besides just work in that one section. That's because this section here is sort of analogous to the last track, or similar to it in in the sense that uh, things are. It's not about in, it's not about prominence. It's about integration. It's yeah. about the fact that there's just there's a delicate touch here in the integration of these instruments that I kind of like. Like I just like the exchange between the different ideas. Uh, so maybe it's it's not the same like they're happening simultaneously before, but I like the exchange going back and forth. I like when they. Uh, withdraw and then dive back in slightly louder 
with the another additional synth melody, which also at this point almost started to sound like a saxophone. It was like a saxophone flare, I think, toward the end of this piece. And I do think it was a nice jam for a while, or a nice loop rather. There's no jamming going on, but it is too safe for too long, and I think that's where I'm going to pull back a bit. And I don't think I enjoyed this to the same extent as I enjoyed the last track. No, I mean even when we get to the bridge and it the those things that we liked got a little brighter and crisper, it doesn't stay that way very long. And again, it just folds into the mix again. So we yeah. don't really get to sit with it that long, even if it is showcased briefly. There actually feels like there's three, maybe even four major bright lines to the synth, which one of them was definitely working off of the guitar. A second one might have been. But because they end up inevitably almost playing with one another towards the end of uh, the major movements in this piece, the major sections of this piece, kind of just muddies them up for me, kind of just, just, just makes them longer winds, so I can't pick out one over the other. It definitely is easier to do when you're listening in headphones because you can, you know, push your left ear in a little yeah. bit more so you can hear that specific and, and really I, contrast I it. Liked, I like that. I liked those I like wines. That. I like the wines. It just, yeah, they deserved more prominence in the mix without having to do what you just said. Without having to compete against over. other wines or other lines that are in that same register. It was just a little bit too much. Let's be real here. It's not that I can't hear them, all right? I hear I everything. Hear, yeah. It's just the artistic end result is kind of a mush. And well, that is and a little bit of a even your ability shame. to process it becomes kind of a mush. It's not that you're not hearing it, but actually hearing something and then processing it individually are not necessarily hand-in-hand hand either. That's why I said I'm not going to say that it isn't background music yeah. because <laughs> it's That's probably fair. why... I, say I had a reason for my philosophical sides. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to track five. Let's talk. Yeah, let's let's talk. Um, we're going to talk about track five, which is let's talk. That's what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> good, good puns. Um, no, no, they're not. And they're I, not. I, I, I'm admitting that this time. Um, so this track features Josh Daly and Time Cop. 1983, which you know what? I'm gonna have a name on an album like this. Time Cop 1983, spot on. First spot noticeable on. thing the BPMs have been extremely slowed, at least for the album. It, it feels like it's almost a half time signature it is compared to everything much, else. Much, much down there. As, much down there. As, as much technical, Many much down technical there. terminology. Uh, more technical terminology. This is a fairly dull intro. Slow or not, this is uh, this is not getting rave reviews or any any bright, shiny thing in my face. There's nothing like, we're back to full 80s material. We don't have that interesting uh-huh. thing I noticed at the beginning of the last track and the track preceding it. It's not something that feels anywhere out of the first two tracks. We're right back there, and now we're dragging it out, which I think made it probably the worst intro of the batch. Uh, not a lot going on apart from the drum machine we all know and love, and a four-note pattern on a mid-range synth. And then the high range steps in, and that one feels like it's got the longest drag to it, because it feels like just an extremely elongated sine wave. It just rises and falls in pitch. It doesn't well, hit it to a T time-wise, but the change between yeah. them, as much as there might be individual notes, it's not really making much room for the individual notes and individual changes to be. So it's really just um, a very long bend. There were actually three things going on at this point. Um, three, three, three things to look at. Just the things, you know, those electrons bouncing off the walls, like I described in the beginning. Now, you've got a lot of electrons here because it's the 80s, and we're talking about science and technology, and there's a lot of information available to the general public on it. Uh, also, the second thing is the more decisive blaring synth. 
that's the thing you were referring to, yeah. of course. It's just blaring, and then the third thing is the arena rock guitar, which is a little bit different because it, it really does have a guitar-specific sound, a more electric guitar-specific sound, which could have been real, or it still could be just all synth, all recreated, but at least it has the sense of it being real. Still, though, it's not blaring. It's actually, like, for instance, it's nothing next to the blaring synth that I just described. The, the arena rock guitar, even though you'd think because it's arena rock it would be prominent, it's not prominent at all. It's actually the quiet arena rock guitar. He's not it's... the frontman, he's the guy holding it down on the sidelines, low volume, but a crucial part of the whole. And we're still in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's that <laughs> level of volume control. Uh, here, I, I'm going to take a bit of a turn and talk about the actual lyrics. Go for it. Mm, this minute, minute is 03, by the way. Minute 03, we get the most John Hughes of the entire album right here. So let's talk. Talk all night long. But this time, say what should be said. And I know it's hard, but this is for the best. Now it's time we go separate ways. Nothing is accomplished in this lyric. Specifically, I mean that actually nothing is being accomplished because we sit down, we talk, and then we go away from one another. You this know, feels like the song that leads up to the song that gets you inspired to go to prom, which leads up to the really awesome song at the end of the movie. <laughs> well, it's funny because when you read that, you know, I almost got one of those sensations. You know how you're, you're always saying to me, well, well, when you read that, I felt the emotion, right? right? But then you go back to the song and you don't feel the emotion. Well, this time I'm going to put that toward John. John said that with, interestingly, more emotion than the singer. Now, this is weird because the singer is belting it, yeah. but there's a problem. The problem is that from the second he begins the first line... So let's talk. It's just, it was, it's the title of the track. I couldn't escape that there was inherent comedy, that the title of the track was exactly what the track was going to be about. That may seem ridiculous, but I felt like there was a joke here. Like, the, the, the campiness behind the simplicity of that message using a, a style that, of course, we've all heard in Name Your Favorite John Hughes flick, it, it just... I, I started to rethink this album, that it wasn't just retro wave, that it was like retro wave with a little bit of a wink and a nod. Like everything you, everything you loved from the 80s. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get an inherent sense of comedy anywhere, though. Like That's your, the tricky your, thing. Your, your reaction is a reaction. I don't know that it was an intended reaction. And also for me, I will say that while John's lyric reading was lovely, Thank there, you. there's not Thank much... You. To the lyrics here or the music I think that both the music and the lyrics in tandem create that John Hughes feel it's not just the lyrics themselves because there's a sway to this it's fairly so slow paced it's it takes its time and I think the point in that is to create that slow dance at the prom feel which is in all of those movies. But that's what? why it's it's inherently campy when I think back to all of those things. And it's just weird that, you know, he wouldn't have this, the, the self-consciousness, the self-awareness going into it. Because, unfortunately, because we all have that lens, we all have associations, and I think it removes the purity of it. So that's what I'm trying to say, is that when John read it by him, just, just reading it, just reading it straight, then you feel the purity in a message that I don't think would be too crazy or even, I mean, yeah, it's simplistic, but it doesn't mean that it's not said, you know, in a million different ways all around the world and it's not equally emotional at the same time. I know it's hard, but this is for the best. Now it's time that we go our separate ways. 
that's that's very sad. But I don't feel sad when he sings it, even though he's pouring his heart out in the music, because he's singing it in a slightly campy fashion. Because, I know that's roundabout. Because the content of the music and the content of the vocal style that's being presented to us screams to me a montage. It's 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 screaming a lot of the same like just point counterpoint situation that you're going to get when you're not really getting much in the way of story exposition because we're not getting a story exposition in the lyrics we're just getting the general themes that are being presented to us so we're getting the general idea that there is maybe conflict maybe not or maybe it's just like i'm going off to college or maybe you're going to be with a different boyfriend or maybe we broke up and are trying to get back together or maybe i'm the best friend trying to uh, be more than a best friend get out of the friend zone or maybe so many other things because there's no personal touch in the lyrics I know, all right, no, that's seeing, another. Pro- actually, that's a that's a big problem. I'm, I'm seeing fact, like that, that's why I'm. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm, right, I'm, I'm seeing why this <laughs> is just a montage scene from a love story, a montage between pivotal events. So, where are my pivotal events on the album, or even in this track itself, that are really going to sell this kind of a thing? All right, that's a uh, it's it's a good explanation of at least what where I could picture this this type of track in a serious context Mm -hmm. um it's still very hard to shake the joke when i get lines like let's just dance you were gonna you and i can dance let's just dance this is our last chance it's the the rhyme scheme is it's it's silly at the end of the day i mean i don't hear comedy in that i just hear simplicity and disappointment more than anything else i don't i I don't believe that kind of writing comes from a self-aware human being i mean I, I might, if they're intentionally trying to create a 16 Candles moment, which is what this song sounds like to me. Bingo. But but I will say one thing. Taking by themselves, and with a little bit of the context of the music itself, I mean, the music I don't think is going to remove too much of the vocals. I liked the vocals by themselves in the kind of fever dream kind of sense. Like, it felt like there was some, like, rawness to them actually there. In their presentation that I don't think meshes up in any other way, but by themselves as a secular piece, there was something going on that I actually liked. And maybe if maybe if they've gone full force and gone like full babble in just what's being said, it could have worked as to be a a, like a hyper reality fever dream kind of situation. And that might have been really cool to to experiment with. Nothing felt fanciful about it, though. Musically. Musically, for me, nothing felt fanciful. And and it overwhelms the vocals, too. And beyond that, I I mean, honestly, I think I'm probably more critical of this track than both of you because I can't normally, the melody, which is where I always go back to, like the melody will hold it down in the end. I'm not even a big fan of this melody because of the fact that the melody really writes itself if you get that opening burst so let's talk <laughs> like I just I feel that it's it is really constrained really really constrained that I can almost I can't visualize this track is coming out of any other context than like Lonely Island Fly to the Concords level material you see uh, but the, the tongue and cheek on those are obvious where here it is not. yeah definitely not here I don't I don't I, be- still I don't see believe as... that comedy has to be obvious in which I, case, I would prefer, um, I realize I'm on two separate fronts here, I would prefer, on one hand, to give this the benefit of the doubt, otherwise completely dismiss it. It, or, feels, it feels more like he's using the word comedy when he means lighthearted drama. Like, not comedy as in ha-ha funny, but the old school version of comedy. Yeah, but it means that I think the composer maybe is making fun of lighthearted drama in his own way. 
I, I and I just don't see that. I think it's it's on the, too on the nose to not just be on the nose. Too on the nose usually means it's on the nose. Yeah, uh, but you got to throw in a, a pivotal point in those words or in those chords yeah, that I that know. says here's a joke. Here's yeah. where's the punchline. Then let me that's ju- what we're missing here. Let me just throw this bone out there for fans of Retrowave because for those particular fans, this I think they have a self awareness. They know exactly what caliber of music they're liking and they're trying to bring to the table and the kind of associations that people have with them. The kind of people who watch Everything is Terrible all day, you know? Everythingisterrible.com with all the the goofy stuff that's been dredged up from public access television, things like that. I think they they know the joke. In which case, it's not going to be lost on them, but it will be lost on... Probably me, probably the other people here at the table, and maybe the rest of the world. It's not that I don't find, you know, everything's terrible comedic, but it's not the stuff that I'm going to go to for my everyday music. Like, like the joke is how I have to take it in the end. Because right. otherwise, it, it is it has all been there. Done and that, that's and kind that's of that. where I am with it. I'm exactly there, actually. Okay, then, then we are all done with it. <laughs> Let's go to track six, Arcade Summer. I felt something... Another instrumental. Another yes. instrumental. <laughs> I felt something here. And it was probably one of the first times I really felt something in the last few but tracks. But it was so brief. I felt hope. I felt hope when Miss Pac-Man showed up for the briefest of moments and we got an 8-bit, like, just, just almost like a... Yeah, it was like, it's the musical version of a screen capture. Yeah. Like just a moment of nostalgia, but a completely different type of nostalgia showing up of an arcade. Just boom. Just tones. This is why nostalgia really is is the whole discussion on yeah. this album, and it's not a specific kind of nostalgia. Although this is about as specific as it gets. Sure. Um, specific, just being like, yeah. All right. I, I don't have any childhood memories from the eighties, um, but my childhood memories of the nineties definitely involved a lot of arcade fun. I really, really, really miss that arcade on South Beach. Um, even though this was not the soundtrack to that specific experience, their title definitely made me a little bit sad because there aren't any nearby arcades anymore after that thing closed, probably in the late 90s. Are you talking about the one on Father Capadano or the other the one? The one on Father Capadano, Sam That Lane. one was awesome. I really missed that one. They closed it down because of all the drugs running through it. Wow. Yep. Yeah, that, yeah. that, that, that big that deal it. adds to the depression. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the last real arcade I went to, it certainly was not on, on, on Staten Island. It was probably way down by Point Pleasant, Asbury Park. And even then, I haven't really been there since uh, Hurricane Sandy hit. More sadness. And even though arcades are definitely in vogue today, like they're put in popular places in the city, like Dave and Buster's, because that just fuses millennials' love of nostalgia with their love of beer, it's mm-hmm. not quite the same. No, it's, it's not. It's not quite the same thing at all. You have to get that, that pay that cover in the beginning, which is quite uh, steep. And, uh, yeah, I, I would prefer to smell sand and ocean salt while I'm playing skee-ball. So for all of these reasons, yes, I'm there with the hope. The hope that John had, as of just the staring at the title and thinking this was going to be more specific kind of nostalgia that, even though it's incidental, would at least reach out to me. Just specifically to me and other people who had arcade experiences. But, but it's only the sound, it's the only soundbite we get. Or one of them. Yeah, five seconds in, it takes a long time after those first five seconds that we actually get a little bit of a throwback as well. But we go through the, the motions. The same stuff. The, well, the yeah, motions. well, we do get a brief... Oh, big moment where like it swells for a split second, but then it, at this is like around thirty-one seconds, it has that kind of build-up that we get to real quick, and then it just 
tumbles headfirst forward for the rest of the track. It doesn't drop, though. That's what was No, really and I never, it's, it's not a drop beat. It, I didn't say it dropped. Tumble is probably the best description yeah, yeah. to come up with it, because there's, there is an obvious sectional change uh-huh. right here, but the blend is very muddy. Like, it's it's a very unclear moment, which itself is actually refreshing to a- to have a moment that isn't stark between these sections. I just don't like it the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. I, I don't enjoy that it's a moment, I guess, that it does actually defy my expectations where we don't go to a transitional point where you don't get five layers cutting out right away and we're left with just a beat. We get a nice downgrade. I like it. But it doesn't do anything we haven't heard already. The The places it goes to are the exact same locations, and the journey's just not quite long enough to make those places kind of, like, out of the way, out, out, of, out of sight, out of mind. The places themselves, our locations of where the A's and B's and C's that show up here are, are, are massive. Which so, is because I don't really, for once, I don't really care about the A, B, C, and D thing. When you title a track Arcade Summer, I only care about one place, and that's the arcade. Yeah. And we're not really there. <laughs> I mean, to, we have to, in, to we enjoy have summer, this track, though. though. We have summer because of the, I will say that that aspect of the title, I don't know, before you even go further. Sure. That aspect of the title, the heat and the simmering seems to be there. And I think that's where that wishy-washy transitional material that I do enjoy, I will say that again, shows up. There's a lot of blending between them, and it's good for that. Um, all right. That's my argument. Fair enough, but I think that in, in, in general, to enjoy this track, it's best enjoyed when for people who love vagueness. And I mean vagueness attached to their nostalgia. For instance, if you're going to have the discussion on rose-colored glasses or something like that, then maybe there's not going to be a specific soundtrack. Maybe it's just going to be a general tone from a general time and generally around that general place. That's it. Our arcade, it was summer. I don't even remember the year, you know? I don't even remember which arcade it was. And this is probably the music maybe I would have heard. So I'll just add a couple little things, a few little opening sound bites, and, and a few more interspersed that link you back to that, uh, that 8-bit era. But otherwise, this track was not particularly arcade-centric, at least no more so than any other. It just it doesn't smack you in the face with it, and maybe that was the intention, that it was supposed to be just vague and i'm starting to at least only as a a, a, a a defense that i will put on the shelf visualize the album that way that because of how we describe the album cover everything here and it did it, it just definitely bolsters the fact that i think there's a bit of wry comedy in here when you talk about the last track here as well it's not as important that the track is titled Arcade Summer, it was almost like an afterthought. It's like how impressionist pieces may be titled one thing or another, but honestly, they're all just vague impressions of things. And this is kind of like 80s impressionism at this point. I mean, I will say to to that respect, I'm hearing individual tones and notes that are reminiscent of songs like Axel F, which we mentioned earlier, um, one of the more famous, ridiculously cinematic 80s pieces, but not in flow or evolution or change, because that song goes through so many motions and movements, whereas this doesn't really. Um, It's the same trick, soft to loud, but I did like the crazy guitar synth solo at 2 minutes and 35 seconds. Which is what I think most reminded me of Axel F. And then we get a breakdown after that that guitar-ish moment, but then from there, the track just kind of wraps up. 
wraps up pretty neatly. That was that was I just won all my tickets at Ski Ball kind of a moment. If we're gonna keep going with the arcade, if if it's supposed to be an arcade, yeah, it was a very enjoyable moment. But it really rapidly does a rebuild after this, and it's one of the, the yeah. biggest and thickest of builds. And in the arch of the album, frankly, it's not that big of a moment. No. Because no. of the blending that is all there and refuses to step aside. Let's go to track seven, Wild Ones, which also features Ali Ride. Uh, at four minutes and 29 seconds, it's kind of a mid-road length track. Right away with the lyrics, um, right off the bat, which is interesting. We don't get that. Yeah, that we start intro. with lyrics here, actually. Uh, you do beneath that get this low, fast bass synth pulse, and it's a little bit quicker. You mean here. like every punk band like, that ever well, lived? Yeah, sort of. I'm not really in punk territory, but still, not a lot going on except that and the melody and our four chords. Standing on a skyline, watching all the cars go, sleeping in the daylight, you're losing all control. I can't stand to see it, watching you fall apart. I never wanted to be anything you are. There's something curious I want to actually talk about with the vocal pacing in this section, and it persists throughout a lot of what this track does, but it was rigid. Four beats of vocal, a bit. four beats of exposition. Like, measure vocal, measure and off. Measure vocal, measure and off. It goes through three of those, and then at the end of those phrases, such as, you're losing all control, that actually extends to six beats, and you get two beats of no vocals. And then it goes right back into that pattern. That oh, was the case? I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, ooh, I was, I was totally on top of this right away. All right. For me... Trusting you. <laughs> it was a little bit different. It's still that... In verse 2, it did the same exact thing. And it's stale that it was doing the same sort of thing in the hooks and in the choruses. That for for whatever reason, in this case, the singer actually gets to break free of just going along to the beat. It's still going along to the beat, but to actually break free of the measures themselves. Yet, they have to break free from the measures exactly the same sort of way over and over and over again. Well, I think my biggest problem with the vocals here is the vacancy of what I loved about them last time. There was a performative nature to them the last time we heard Ollie Ride, and here it's more or less gone. The delivery's a lot flatter, though beltier at moments. There's not a, a emotion that's conveyed. At least the last time we had Ollie's lyrics, there was an emotionale to how he performed them, and that just seems to be gone here. I would disagree when it pertains to the choruses. I think that's true for the verses, kind of true for the the pre-choruses as well, uh, but the choruses themselves I actually rather liked. I, I actually preferred them just because of even the strong first three notes of the melody, that wild ones, right, that up to minor third, and then when it hits that height, wow, it actually did belt. I think that was a, a great moment. I think that sometimes fourths is just all that these pop songs require on this album and in this case it did that the problem is the rest the problem is the rest of it is is mixed very very low and maybe that's the intention to make it sounded to make it sound faded you know faded like a distant memory it was not Uh just mixed low it was thick it was a lot of layers it was everything being used on this track at the same time it was a opposite side of the warehouse wall of sound 
I mean, I, I'm, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think the bigger problem for me is that it's just un, completely unchanging and repetitive. Uh, like, well, at least I like the melody component, the melodic component, and I think sometimes that can save things. It didn't here for me though. I think for me the problem is is that even those melodic components eventually did repeat, and the choruses eventually did repeat almost unchanged. And I think for me, if I wasn't into it so much the first time, when it came back the second time, still wasn't really that into it. The hooks don't need a lot. To hook you, of course. Sure. Uh, I guess, yeah. I'll, but if I'll, they I'll, don't, then... If then they don't, then they don't. So yeah. they didn't for you. They just did kind of for me. It made it maybe my second or third favorite track on the album. Um, the pre-choruses, I should also not completely dismiss. As far as prepping you for that chorus, I notice there are, or there appear to be, multiple singers harmonizing. I bet you think you're pretty dangerous, burning down the walls, breaking all the laws. Yeah, has there ever been a time for us? I guess I'll never tell. And then the bridge. Well... I don't care about the bridge here. <laughs> no, All me I, either. The, the, there was a pause mid-bridge, which I could see coming a mile away. Yeah. That pause there where everything just slows up, and it's like, oh, yeah. oh you, can you feel the pain the in faux, this one moment? The and faux I, heartfelt moment. Yeah. yeah. Which we got an abundance of on previous pop records. And now, track eight. Don't want to change your mind. Well, something here happens that hasn't happened much anywhere on the album. Has your mind been changed? No, but there is a change. A change in the vocals. Ah. This was actually, for me, my favorite vocal section in the very beginning. We're featuring Ollie Ride again. It was specifically that we had an electric piano sound pairing up with radio vocals. But it's not just that they're like radio background kind of a vocal style. It's that we have no beat pairing up with the vocals. And this this was actually really enjoyable to the point where I, I I honestly didn't care much for what they were saying. I didn't care. I didn't care what the what the singer was actually singing. Well, I was good. just enjoying it. Well, well that's good because I think lyrically this is probably the most boring the entire record has been. Uh, not uh, the first get... verse. No, no, no. The first verse actually does stand up a little bit. It's not through lack of feeling that my head's against the wall. Convince me that I'm dreaming and you're waiting by the door. This actually feels personal. First time I feel like something majorly personal is going to happen. Really uh, abolish that rhyme scheme here, though. That's, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with free form. It's the fact that cliches start showing up really heavily in the second part of the verse. Coincidentally, when the kick comes in, when we actually get a heavy beat, yeah. I know that I've been chasing my tail, oh. I've been dragging us both down to our knees. If you want to escape, just say, you always knew what was good for me. Yeah, three cliches in a row. Uh, you lost me. I don't know. I feel like the whole track here, I mean, it's a slow jam, but it's 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 hitting cliche moments, and, you know, the beat is unchanging here. When the beat finally settles in, yeah. and of course it's on the two and the four, when you get that rim tap, I yeah. noticed. Thump, tap. Don't tap. That's a slightly different type of beat, which I'm I'm satisfied. Well, no, not satisfied with. Glad to see, though. In contrast, uh, a little before a minute in, when we get that chorus, you know, it is a little bit busier at this point, but that doesn't really add much. Uh, also, it was a really short chorus. I noticed. Don't want to change your mind. Don't want to change your mind. Don't want to change. Don't want to change your mind. Um, it, it interesting that this was actually a very short chorus, all things considered. I, maybe it's just because of the pace of this. I expected it to kind of drag, but whatever. I'll, I'll take brevity at this point. 
But I'm not a fan of those verses. I am inclined to agree with Matt here. The verses have a very aimless quality about them. It's not so much the lyrics, though. It is the melody here. So I was defensive of the melody, or at least portions of the melody in the last track. Here, the melody does not grab me. And, you know, I think the, the rhyme scheme actually is a bit of a problem for me. Sometimes, especially in a track this, this simplistic, you know, this straightforward, I think even just a good rhyme scheme, something that sticks in your head, probably could have added a little more. This is not... This is not freeform caliber material i think it mostly has to do with the content that the freeform nature doesn't quite work but i love the fact that the voice is really just singing singing itself it's not doing anything it's specifically the heavy reliance on rhythm to keep the song propagating that bothers me because i think the voice would have worked so much better without without really the drum section without that section pushing everything else forward mm. and it being a little bit a little bit on the ethereal side it, it it really being aimless was actually good it was good that the no it was good only because we're getting something that is not two-stepping along with a simple 4-4 beat. All right, well, that's at 2 minutes and 35 seconds, which is when he's vocalizing. Uh, it's the, the rhyme scheme is not a, it's not a factor there. It's not. So, I like it. Yeah. I, I really enjoy that section. I like that this is one of the few tracks that we're actually getting uh, singing, just singing, doing something. Yeah, but I felt that the first time Ollie appeared and was singing, it was done better. I think that the first verse is where it's actually done I think he does the best in this first half, first verse. I guess, and but I everything... got an entire song consistently of it, whereas here I get the first verse and then who cares? It's Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. After that first half of the first verse, very specific yeah. area, I stopped really caring because of all the musical problems that were going on for me. And one thing that I really want to point out in the chorus, the first don't. I do not like the sound that goes along with the first don't. It specifically just feels like everything... specific. It feels like an orchestra going bang, right in my face, just yeah. making noise. Yeah. And then it goes musical, but it, it just feels like an instant of noise that is just jarring. And I, it's, every time I hear it, I just don't enjoy it. It's specifically a point I want to point out. On this album, I don't enjoy it. Well, with this kind of track, I mean, we could probably go back and forth between the little things that we like and the little things that we don't. I don't think we're all terribly affected by the track in any grand sense, but I will agree with you, John, that I enjoyed that ethereal segment at 2 minutes and 35 seconds. I like those vocalizations. I like the fact that it gets progressively louder and then it creeps up on you in both ears. So all of a sudden there, when I guess it was slightly, just slightly more experimental, I, I was digging it. I liked the synths in tandem. That was cool too. I just wish they had taken that to the next level and not back to the familiar level and all of the aforementioned problems uh, that I said about the, the, the melody and the and the, the rhyme scheme, and uh, frankly, about anywhere else in the album. I just felt like it went back to the beginning, true to form, back to standard album fare. Which is, what's curious about the next track, Atlas? It's like Interlude. They, Atlas, yes, quote, in parentheses, interlude. Like it's part which of the is, title. Which is so sad that it was just interlude, because it's only 55 seconds long, by far, leaps in ahead's the shortest track on the album, yet it seemed to isolate that section that we all really kind of liked in the previous piece, and actually made it a track. That is true, and I, I, I think that really, really worked on me. In fact... 
even though I'm inclined to say that obviously for you know full track reasons, uh, track three was probably my favorite so far. Track nine uh, really is close second because at 55 seconds, I, I brevity absolutely works here. It's all they have, and so to take that single segment, at least I can say it didn't you know go back or fall back on its old patterns. There's no not a fall back on. You just do the thing, do the thing that is awesome, and complete it. Uh, I also like the fact that they added kind of a. Well, this is at the very beginning of this track, a sort of a muffled synth trumpet. Yeah, a it new, sounded a new like tone. we got some brass here, horns, if you will, that really kind of resonated in a way that we've not really heard the synth do at this point on the record. And I think that it, it added character to it added character to the album, but I think also gave us an idea of what this composer is capable of doing beyond the repetitive stuff he'd been doing. It's not just about adding character. It also blends into those vocalizations when they finally arrive really, really well. This is about overlapping, and that was particularly enchanting for me. It it, it worked on me uh, not in a narrative connecting sense for the album, but in, in just a moment in time. That's the the context in which I enjoy this album, yeah. which incidentally is no context at all. Well, and also this doesn't summate anything. This the it being the title track means almost nothing. Like I don't get a sense of oh well now it all makes sense because I heard this title track. Like there's none of that. But it the big problem as the, having this piece as a whole with the rest of the album is that it is decisively not your standard '80s fare. Like because it is so different yeah. and. I guess because it is so leaning away from everything we have in the 80s, it's not really a part of the rest of the album except in the tone of the instruments. Okay, well, that's interesting because actually I don't think... My reasons for liking this track are not linked to it not being 80s. I actually have two thoughts on that. But first of all, you know, the tracks on this album that are not as 80s to me are really down to tracks 3 and 4. Those are the one, and even then, really only the intros. This, if you're just going to talk about, like, the overall composition of it, then this is my second point. I don't think we should keep characterizing the 80s as this simplistic era. You know, the whole entire decade of, of uh, if you were just talking about pop, then even so, you have a lot to draw from. It's just that I think kind of some of the things that we go back to today are really, really looking at some of the shallower parts of it. And I think that's the tragedy. Maybe it could be that track nine here, Atlas Interlude, actually is uh, looking back, back to the 80s in a deeper sense. And I, in a deeper sense. That even though it's only 55 seconds long, it's looking at the kinds of stuff that was using new textures for the time and then pushing them in interesting compositional directions. Uh, because, of course, you have all the, you still have all the reverb, and, of course, you have vocalizations that were used a lot, utilized back then. I can't think of any artists off the top of my head, but I still think that this is linked to the decade, but just in a more advanced sense for all of the 55 seconds it stuck around. Track 10? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Jupiter. Uh... Hey, finally a track to take the drums to the next level. Right, we have some variety here and almost what feels like improvisation. It's obviously not, but there's a pattern to this that adds a playfulness to the drum that is wholly welcomed because it was just non-existent the whole album. Yeah, honestly, the rhythm section from the second I went on that introductory rant about the first four bars, you know, and how I like that little cool pickup that when the syncopation involved, then I really haven't heard anything in the rhythm section since that sort of equaled it, <laughs> equaled that one moment 
in uh in fascination right and it's this just been definitely thoroughly does. dull as hell in this album yeah but here there's a playfulness to it it does definitely feel like a live drummer they're they're kind of going around a bit instead of hitting a steady one two three four more like a one a two a three and a four and a one and a two and a three and a four and then it kind of does different things as it goes it actually feels like a several changes several times over the course of the loop so uh, that's really just a portion of it and uh, as a result, because of the pace, you do feel like you're sort of back to the running sensation again, like we were at in track two. Um, Actually, uh, that's where I'm taking over, because sure. I don't know what I can say about Jupiter that's different than Tears, except with the context of it sounds more like running in the night as opposed to Tears, which sounds a lot like a lot of everything else on the album. Like, specifically, thematically, it sounds like expositional material on the album. Because it goes through a lot of the same positives, ups, and tears, where we do get changes along the way. And, you know, good mixing that introduces new themes for, like, the first few minutes. But it's five-ish minutes so that we keep cresting over and over again in the same sort of patterns of I'm going to use A, B, C this time and the next time I'll use A, B, D and the next time it'll be B, C, E and it's only A through E that we're using. Like there's only so many words you can make with all these layers. <laughs> well, it's true but in reasons that I'm slightly, for reasons that I'm slightly more forgiving of. The, like the, the chord changes here I think are actually what really set this track up a little bit above some of the others and also because it's a point of nostalgia for me. It really connected me to uh, Vangelis, specifically the track Alpha off of of my many mentioned Albedo 0.39. It was only a matter of time until we heard about this Look, today. If you think I'm overusing this reference point because it's a personal album favorite, then you'd only be half right. <laughs> uh, it, yes, it's an early port of call in the development of my musical tastes and my perception of electronica thereafter. But guess what? It meant a hell of a lot more to the electronica composers who followed up Vangelis. Uh, because Vangelis is essentially the Beatles of the electronica and ele electro-pop community. And believe me, there are parts of that album that are hopelessly repetitive at times. But it was also because he was in a constant state of experimentation and also because he just did it first. So, <laughs> this is that's not the case here, so I need to withdraw a lot of that. But at least you have the nostalgia, you have the connection. Some of the chord changes here really went back to that era, which even goes back to the 70s. Um, the running bass, did I mention that? Kind of did. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the problem is we're running out of, and we've touched on this before, running out of new ways to say the same thing. I mean, you know... I do like the pacing of tracks like this. It's why I did like Running in the Night. It's why I do like this track. I use the term as loosely as possible. But eventually that kind of a pacing and imagery only gets you so far, especially when the image is not that clear and crisp because you're only kind of assuming based on pretenses you don't actually you aren't actually given any kind of narrative here well then i'll say two more things for this track the first is kind of a negative because of course every single time the beat restarts itself i always think hopefully even even now at, at the penultimate track that it will be a new section but it's never a new section it's a new layer or maybe a removed one yeah uh the second thing i think i'll mention is is three minutes and 28 seconds um did almost feel sort of like a new section at this point, just just with this one moment here, but also not at the same time, because layers have been removed, and many of them have been removed, to the point where I feel it as being wholly new, uh, except for just the, the tinny harpsichordial thing, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> just sort of shining brightly uh, as it does. Um, it feels new enough, I think, just because that was the only thing remaining. 
especially after the light vocalizations enter in here, subtle things, um, subtle developments, this did become very moody after a while. And so I think that's another reason why I'm slightly more forgiving of this track, is that, number one, because it has the captivating chord choices, and I think it just because of the added human element late in an instrumental track gave it a slightly uncanny feeling. Almost like, well, the track title, Jupiter. So what do you think we think of Jupiter? You think of space. You think of the planet and not the god, I assume. Um, you think of space, and space is cold, and it's it's re- unrelenting, and yet it's enchanting at the same time. Well, I will, I will say, to its credit, you know, it's very easy with a song like Jupiter to you know, or something called that at least, to go very spacey and ethereal as we've talked about so many times. And they didn't really do that here, and I appreciate that because that would be the clichéest cliché they would have clichéed at this point. Yeah, and I'm glad I picked it up only, like, subtly. Right. Not, it didn't smack me in the face with it. But when when you really think about it, that's been the rule of the album. Because, of course, our arcade, you know, arcade summer only, just vaguely also. Just vaguely might take place in an arcade. Maybe. (laughs) Sort of. All right, final track of the album, track 11, appropriately named Goodbye, and this is featuring Clive Farrington, uh, who is our vocalist on this track. Um, You know, (laughs) talking to cliches, the the tone from the moment this song starts is your Off Into the Sunset song, your credits, 80s credits song. Like, it really fits that mold, and it's just... To me, I'm just so fatigued and disappointed. Bass and drums are boring as hell. Can't really get past them. Vocal tone this is interesting. It's somewhere between feeling like it fits perfectly and also not fitting at all. Uh, reason, of course, we get this new singer here. It's yeah. not. Uh, it's not Ali. Yeah, it's Clive. And I noticed that he has kind of a rasp that yeah. feels slightly weathered. And I think that kind of works in the track's favor. But also maybe just because of the late introduction of a new vocalist over the same music, that that's kind of unexciting at the end of the day. Like, you'd think that would add something, but because they did it and because it wasn't anything particularly grand, it's just sort of him singing the same style, actually, as Ollie. It's just he's a different voice, a different person. That Like, that in itself is not nearly enough. Uh, I, I like the introduction of the fake piano, um, I don't even want to say electric piano and keyboard at this point. It's just a fake piano in a sea of other fake things. Yeah, and I mean, as far as lyrics go, they're probably the more elementary lyrics on the album, and that's a bummer, too. I think that, you know... Let's read them. You want, to, want me to read them? Uh, sure. <laughs> you I, don't I read want some of them. I you don't want, want finish, me to read them. I just want to finish my thought on it. Is go I think it. what's frustrating about... There's nothing wrong with simplistic or even childlike lyrics. We've lauded childlike lyrics before, but I think there's always some kind of innocent poetry to them or just beauty in how they're arranged that is just not coming through here. As summer fades away, lost in a cloudless haze, just hold me and touch a wave. There's no more we need to say. Yet I don't want to say goodbye. I don't want to see you cry. And now it's too late to say goodbye. Now I love you. And now it's too late to say goodbye. It's not over. We're caught in a moment, lost in a summer breeze, moving in circles as light flickers on the sea. Now I don't want to say goodbye, I don't want to see you cry. It's too late to say goodbye, now I love you. It's not over. Nah, 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 nah. Now we're forever. Nah, I I will say, I will say that, you know, the little (laughs) bits of the lyrics that we get, there is some minor sense of a narrative of heartbreak, but it's very general and very cliche, and I think that's... What really bums me out about it, like, 
look, we've we've talked this to death. There have been so many heartbreak stories. And even some of those lyrics do feel heartbreaking. I think if there was just a little more detail, a little more something to latch on to, some narrative bullet points that could really suck us in, it could have changed a lot of the dynamic for the lyric tracks. I think this is one thing where you should even beware of my soothing tone when I read vocals. <laughs> I Really, because I, I am, this is the kind of poetry that I think uh, is... It may sound pretty. It may sound very pretty, but I think it still even has some of the same problems. You know, we're caught in a moment, lost in a summer breeze, uh, general fare for the album, moving in circles as light flickers on the sea. See, it, it's a nice poem. It, it has the nice little rhyme scheme there. It actually rolls off the tongue kind of nicely. But this, these kind of... These kind of vagaries, it's very easy to connect that to just about anything. It's very easy to write and just feel like there is there is preciousness in every single moment. I feel like that is, it, it's easier writing than it lets on. Like, I don't know, standing on a corner, uh, streetlights hovering over me, cars move in slow motion as I stand on Avenue C. There you go. Did you really off the cuff that? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's... You know what? That's actually no. I paused. <laughs> that's actually a, a very good example. And you know what? I've got nothing to add. I don't think I've actually said anything specific about this track. And there's a very good reason because I don't want to repeat myself anymore. I'm done repeating myself on specific. So I'm gonna go right into my wrap up and give you the summation of what's going on here and the rundown. Point one: the drums. Never change, except Almost for the one, never. except for Jupiter. Jupiter's the one spot where they actually change. <laughs> Gotta have a big drum for Jupiter. And it's not even that they're extremely repetitive in the track by track, or even like some instances. I feel like the the literal beat per moment, the kick has not changed from one to the next. It's that you're using a synthesizer, but you're not experimenting with the synthesizer. You can create all sorts of different levels to these. And it's been done. It's what Electronica does now. So you can have a kick that sounds one way and then the next track, it, its pitch is going to change, sure. But here, the, the adherence to making it sound as realistic as possible while synthesized, definitely not a good thing. Point two, the way the bass is used, the way the, the guitar work is used is extremely low key, very often extremely repetitive. They're really nothing more than extensions of the rhythm. They never quite stand up on their own, except for the one instance in Arcade Summer that they kind of show up just for a brief moment. The guitar shows up and then is immediately drowned out by everything else. Point three, the synth, especially the high register synth, is pervasive and gets muddied up because multiple layers get thrown on top of one another and just keep adding on top of one another so that... What could have been an expansive idea of one line gets just confused as the other line step in. These are 80s ideas. These are what they were doing during the 80s. There's very, very little nod towards what is here today. And that is the biggest problem going on in this album. Yes, I know it's supposed to be a love story to the 80s. I understand that. But there is a lot of self-reflection I want to say showing up here or at least an attempt to it in the music I feel like that was present that there was a little bit of nostalgia looking back but nostalgia is not enough to build an album on yes your bar is to make the penultimate 1980s synth pop 
that's not a very high bar in my opinion because the penultimate synth pop of the 80s was made during the 80s so all you can do is imitate without any improvement you're not going to be doing anything really new and that is <sighs> imitation is is not enough to carry an album and here going with fairly as as matt put it childish lyrics i think all said and done a lot of this was a childish approach to 1980 synth pop and i don't see that as a very a very expressive or expansive idea and you can do things that are simple you can do things that are complicated we've come across both that have been magnificent but here it was like striding the line between the two. Keep it simple enough to keep it recognizable, but add enough complications on top of it to make it something that is unique. Well, it doesn't commit one way or the other, so it doesn't stand out. And we made so many allusions towards things that came in the past. Just, I don't know. It feels like in, in many ways this is just like a penultimate cliché that we really have complained about on this podcast multiple times. We've lauded in few instances, but we've complained about it so much more. So for that, as much as it is just like good music, it would have been good music back in the 80s, and nowadays it just cannot stand up to today's standards. So 2.5. I think... Taste is probably going to edge its way into this review more so than many, many others in this podcast. I really try my best to be as just removed and logical about this, and I'm still going to do that with this review. But this is a, apparently, from what you'd glean from the internet, a retro wave fan's wet dream. It, it, it is, ever, from everything that it said in that, that opening uh, those liner notes, I guess, or whatever it says in the Bandcamp page. Atlas is the story of wonder, imagination, dreams, youth, innocence, love, and heartbreak, all captured under the golden light of a fading summer sun. Uh, soaring cinematic journey to the sound of summer long gone? Sure. But, you know, you don't even really need that to kind of get the sense of that. In which case, it, it really is a question of, well, how specific does your music need to be? Does it just, is it, is it just supposed to be that, that vague? Um, because... All of those things, if it's the story, then it's not supposed to be what you bring to the table. If it's a story of wonder, imagination, dreams, youth, then it's what the composer brings to the table. And it's all of the stuff therein. It, maybe it was something that happened to him, which he is just sort of compressing. I, I, none of this really comes across, and except maybe for the retrowave fan who was already into that. And that's where I just have to really set myself apart from this, because... If you're a fan of Retrowave, then you've listened to this album, and you see all these things, and they're there. And it's not to say that I don't, like, I can't project that a little bit, but I project it no more so than I would project on any other genre, except for the fact that this is in a decade which is closer to our generation, and the generation in which, I guess, spawned all the Retrowave fans. Some of them, I, I bet, are even younger than, you know, actually have memories from the 80s. I don't know how old the composer is. But if that's the case, then this decade is getting some, some unfair advantage, I think, over that of any other decade in which there were people born and had, uh, and had precious memories. I don't see the particular appeal in this. I like, the, I like so much media from the 80s, but I have it. And so I 
go there for it. I don't, I don't need something new to go for it. I would rather push music along in, 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 a, in a new direction, and I just don't see anything vaguely new on this album. If we're going to talk about focus, then I just don't think that that... that little header for this album is nearly enough focus for this album. I mentioned before M83 and how M83 had a focus with junk, which was chiefly that they wanted specifically to dredge up things that were at the at the sort of the dawning of the information age that were just about to be forgotten. Things that were used in, in throwaway media. And that maybe in many ways the 80s was the beginning of throwaway media culture, or at least in vast the vast majority of it coming about that still managed to linger through uh, basement cardboard boxes of VHS tapes. You dredge them up, you pull something out, and now it's like, this would never be considered art except to any other person than the person who made that throwaway thing. It's a commodity. It's more of a commodity than anything else. But this is clearly not commodity, and yet it kind of could just as equally come across as a commodity to me. You know, when I looked at the album cover, like I said, I almost saw a logo, and my little goofy spiel at the beginning of the record about uh, being an instructional video. Well, those are things that don't connect anywhere close with the stuff that he, I guess, wanted to be present on this album. You know, the story of wonder, imagination, dreams, youth, innocence, love, heartbreak, really? An instructional video? As far as I'm concerned, the music does not accomplish enough to put me in one area or another. Ideas come to me, associations come to me, and I just try to field them on this show just for the sake of conjuring up different ideas. And I, I just have to say it was not terribly successful. I don't think that there was enough here, especially not in the kind of scant, vague lyrics that we do get eventually here. There was just simply not enough to make that little paragraph uh, stand out, to make it matter on this album. So I'm dismissing the paragraph. Essentially, what this was to me, largely, was a, a big 80s vat of stuff that the composer likes from a decade that he likes. Um vaguely personal things that may have transpired vaguely during a vague decade that differs from person to person. It's just, it doesn't transcend the album or, or, or even the artist to me, and that's the biggest problem I have. With that being the focus, I think there's a lot here in the whole retrowave community that masks quality. I mean, that masks the lack of quality, rather. And uh, to me, that's not a success. I, I think that this really needed to be flushed out into a narrative and a story. I don't like vagueness. It validates music as background material. And although there was a moment here in the middle of this album, in the middle of this review, where I was almost kind of validating that <coughs> myself for the sake of the artist, I, I don't think it's really... It, it does not save this album in the end. So I'm going to leave that in the shelf for people that feel that that does matter for the work. So the last uh, point that I have to bring up here is that that uh, the notion of fakeness, of fake things and electronica in general. Uh, I, I noticed that when I brought that up, it's like almost I hadn't been listening to electronica for the last several weeks. You know, we've had enough electronica on the show, and I didn't find myself bringing up the word fake. No, instead it's no, more, like, more things like <coughs> visceral. And visceral is not really the case here in this album at all. So go figure that after all these episodes, I would be so harshly opposed to the incessant return of bygone styles in a, in a fake setting, and, and, and as a result, I've become so firmly acoustic-oriented lately. Like, I'm enjoying the return to natural check textures, for the most part, or at least fake sounds that hint more towards natural textures. That's where the visceral term really comes, really comes out. And, and that's not a slight towards John's electronica that he's brought onto the show. It's, Thank it's, you, yeah. Yeah, it's just that he, they, can't, they can't go middle road with synths anymore, and the stuff you brought, for the most part, was not you know, middle road. They either have to do one or two things. They either knock me over backwards with the synths that they can conceive of, 
or they just play the living crap out of some traditional instruments. Uh, both of those extremes are what really impress me these days, and I know that comes back to taste. So yeah, for taste largely, this is definitely a below three album. Uh, it, it's in the twos. I have to put this more at a 2.25. There are just not enough <coughs> moments going on here. Um, all right, my wrap up. So, I mean, I feel like there's not a lot to say that hasn't been said already, but, uh, you know, I picked this album in hopes of grabbing something random. I, I have a, a habit of relying on the bands that I either know or have heard of or that I've heard you know, popular reviews of, you know... So, as you said, you did the us route, where we just right, throw a dart. Essentially. And I thought, well, let me cycle through pop stuff. And when I saw that this was all 80s, and it was focused on the 80s, I thought... I mean, I thought it would go one of two ways. Either it would be something that we were fascinated with, because it's something wholly original with 80s synth, or... It would go sort of this way, where we were just kind of bogged down in the thing we got once in a while for an album length. And that's a bummer. Um, especially since I do like a lot of 80s music. I think what really hurts this record for me is its stagnancy. The fact that it is so consistently the same from moment to moment. Um, you know, it's almost relentless. It's a bummer even that the vocalists become samey. You know, I really like Ollie Ride, and I'd be curious what else Ollie Ride has done. I hope it's not just this. I hope there, if Ollie Ride has a solo record, I'd be interested to hear his singing on that. You know, I'm even intrigued by the other featured artists as well. I think that the the real crime here is that, and, and Steve touched on it, is the lack of a th clear theme or arc or narrative other than 80s i don't think that's enough um you know it, it, it's worth mentioning that this is the debut full-length record he's had an ep before then before that but this is the first record and so maybe he's maybe he just wanted to put something out that this way he could say he had an album he's been working on tons of stuff had nothing that he felt was you know uh, he didn't want to release single tracks, so he released an album of stuff that maybe he thought is just stuff that he had. But I don't want to dismiss it that way either. I don't believe for a minute the composer didn't work hard on this. I think just he's very steeped in something that's, def you know, defining him in a specific way that he can't really break out of. I mean, even if there are creative ways to do this kind of stuff, and I know there is, you know, Steve read the, the three-line bio, and that's that's what he wants to be, and so be it. But it, it definitely misses the mark as far as something that I would recommend or enjoy in the future. I think even with as repetitive as Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness was, because of my connection to him as an artist, and because I could sing along to every track, I love his singing voice, that was enough for me. Whereas here, even the tracks I can sing along to, after a couple of listens, I wasn't much interested in doing so. Um, so I'm I'm... I'm somewhere between John and Steve. I don't know that it's exactly a 2.5 because that 2.5s to me are things that I don't love but that have a redeemable quality. I think this lacks that redemption. In fact, I think I'm inclined to actually put it right where Steve has it at a 2.25. I think that I, I might give the artist another shot because I really do believe you could do something interesting with the 80s and I think maybe he will but this is definitely not that record and either way it wouldn't surprise me if others didn't come back to it. But I didn't glaringly hate it. I just think it didn't have enough originality for me to really invest in it. I'm thoroughly surprised that I was the 
I guess, highest rater on this one. Because I was spitting venom before we actually did this. Just because I wanted to be like out there when we were explaining this stuff. And I do think there's a bunch of redeeming qualities here because I feel like he's actually mastered the 80s. I just don't think you can just master something without you got to throw a little bit more personality into it. I think that's really like the crux of the issue. I mean, yeah, we all agreed that there's it's, not much of him in this that it's I just, can find. It's just I'm, a I'm, decade. I disagree with that patently. I think that this is a simplification, a shallow simplification of a decade. I think that if you just view it through, it would be a tragedy if people only know the 80s from the kind of kitschy, retro-wave pop sense. That's fair. I think that... A lot of other stuff out there that was written this at the one time. We have, this one, we have punk. We got punk. That's not even what I'm talking about. Even in the electronica community. I'm talking about... <laughs> I've said Vangelis before. I'm holding him up. I know he started in the 70s, but he kept writing. You know? Go back he, to him. He, he keeps was, writing. Um, the Alan Parsons Project was doing amazing stuff from the 70s into the 80s. Honestly, that's that's where to go. That's what you, we should be learning from. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that the the barrier for entry here is clearly nostalgia and the '80s specifically. If you don't like '80s music, you're not going to like this. Specifically, the, but we're going to specifically hone in on the the synth pop of the '80s. Like, if you don't have a nostalgia feel, if you don't have a yeah. love of that genre, a bit a brief genre, but a genre nonetheless, you're not going to really, I think, touch on this album. The way the artist like poured himself into this album, and that's going to be our topic of the day. Does nostalgia directly impact certain things, like certain bands, certain albums? Like, can you just not get into it if you're not nostalgic about something they're doing? Yeah, I think that we've talked about barriers of entry before and biases, but I think this is very specific. And nostalgia's in a lot of places. I mean, I'll take it outside of music for a sec before bringing it back to music. But within the last year or so, um, Nintendo released a classic NES console that wasn't actually the old NES, but it was a smaller version of it, but it had preloaded 30 Nintendo games on it. It sold like wildfire. I mean, it also didn't hurt that Nintendo shorted their supply, as they tend to do, but neither here nor there. It sold like wildfire because if you loved Nintendo and you don't still have your Nintendo, you wanted this nostalgic item. But I didn't buy it because I don't... Like, I have nostalgia for classic Nintendo games, but I don't feel the need to spend money on it again. If I wanted it, I would have kept it. I did. I, I beat the three big ones. I beat... Mario, I beat Zelda, and I beat Ninja Gated. Yeah, I beat the trifecta. The only thing I didn't do was Samus, like Metroid. That's one. Of, that's one of the four. Okay, sure, but I was done. I've but, moved on since then. I mean, but it's not even about that. It's just also that there's clearly this clamoring for nostalgic things, and it can be a point of entry. But, like, we're hitting with this album. I mean, even me as a fan of this kind of music, I tend to agree with Steve that this is an oversimplification of it. And so even as someone who, like me, who can engage in simplistic things and enjoy them, this washes even over me. Well, I believe nostalgia helps, but I don't think it has to be a prerequisite. I, I'm personally of the opinion that uh, composition can overcome <coughs> most bounds. Like it most, it overcomes most barriers between people. If you, if that quality can actually bring something, 
and yeah, I guess this is kind of a dig at this album, but I think quality can connect people to uh, to other things, to other areas that they don't have the background, the nostalgic background for, such as, for instance, um, some of the the video game music we looked at in Smooth and the Groove Remixed. You know, I had that massive introduction on how I really don't have the same uh, background with video games as you guys. It's a pretty narrow spectrum. Eventually, I got into a little bit more of it, but I know quality when I see it. I know that those were pretty amazing, addicting themes, you know, yeah. that were that really could stand on their own when played over and over and over, as you do for the course of a level, dying, restarted again, dying, restarted again. That's, uh, I, I think it's a challenge to make something that is that, that, that is that addicting. And I think it actually surpassed much of what is out there in, in, in pop music. So, no, to me, composition is really the, the biggest thing. I think it, it supersedes nostalgia. But there is a certain level of compositional, like, I guess, caliber where it may not be an amazing piece. It may not be something that people will want to emulate. But there are still amazing quality things that are still really curtailed in a genre. Certain albums and certain pieces. Like I would say that as much as I love Weezer, and I will bring this up only because I have a lot of nostalgia associated. As much as I love Weezer, a album like Make Believe, specifically, like that album they produced, I don't think works if you're not already in love with Weezer's sound. I don't know how much you would really enjoy it because the other pieces that they did, the earlier albums, I think actually did have a lot more quality in the compositional work that they were producing. But I, I still thoroughly enjoy Make Believe. It's still in my rotation of Weezer. I'm not going to remove it or play something else to its detriment if we... I'm doing that. But it's still, I, I still think it's a high caliber piece. Maybe not crossing the boundaries compositionally, but I know from my point of view, the only reason why I'm really into it is because I'm nostalgic for it. Then let me clarify to say that nostalgia matters to people who are getting into other, or rather, no, it doesn't matter for people who are getting into other areas. It only matters to the people who are already nostalgic. If you're going in, if, if you are nostalgic about something, you'll go back to it at a habit. Just have it. That's it. Um, nostalgia could be linked to that habit, but obviously people who don't have the same nostalgia, they don't have the habit. In which case, of course, it's only going to be the composition of that particular work that's going to get them over to it or not. They're either going to have to say, yeah, that's a quality, quality work. Then on the flip side, nostalgia is the barrier for those people. Since they don't have it, they will not be able to get into said genre. But to me, that's equilibrium. That's equilibrium. That's not a barrier. It means that they're they're on uh, fairgrounds and you're not. Like you have an inherent bias almost by your your nostalgia, which I can see. I think that I don't know. I think also it depends on what we're talking about and what's considered nostalgic. I mean, also I could I'm nostalgic for the '90s because that's where I did most of my growing up, even though I was born and lived in the '80s. Yeah, 90s same, is, same all around, that's right? All for us. But but so what I'm saying is, I think, but but whereas like my wife, who is not the same age as me, is not nostalgic for the 90s in the same way I am because she has an additional X amount of years yeah, on me. It, it gets exhausting when people, you know, <coughs> for something that just feels like it was yesterday. You know, I'm certainly, this, the second that we start getting nostalgic about the aughts, then I think we need to re, <laughs> rethink what, it, what we're... It's, be re it's becoming a thing. Yeah, it's I becoming don't a thing. believe it, it should be. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what area of culture you're talking about. I like a lot of comedy, actually, from the aughts. I think comedy was a 
pretty, I think it was taking a nice turn, but then again, I also really am anchored back to my 90s comedy, so eh. <laughs> I think also because um, the, the, I don't know if the 30-year rule is quite as applicable across the field as it used to be. Like, I've been seeing trends. Certain toys, sure. Artistic styles, maybe. Uh, actually, cars seem to be going through a heavy 30-year rule. But some things, like music, like television, like movies, I feel like it's getting compressed. Now we're getting a, the third boot of Spider-Man, which is a little bit of that... 15-year rule. It's almost yeah. like we're being cut in Yeah, half. but that's more about finances. The, the Spider-Man movie is a poor example because Sony just wants to keep the rights, and then now they're partnered with Marvel, so it's sort of irrelevant. But, but I will actually point out the X-Men franchise, and it's kind of culminating piece with Logan, which I still haven't seen yet, no spoilers, uh, seems to be going through like a 15-year cycle, because they're already talking about taking the characters that were in a up and down and all around kind of a franchise. I liked most of the movies. Or yeah, most but that's also still a financial movies. thing. Fox doesn't want to lose the right. Well, Actually, that either means not, one or two yeah, things. That's yeah. not a thing. It, it seems to be more they're trying to now reinvent it for the next generation of yeah, teenagers. Yeah, but they're still rushing to do it in a shorter period of time because they can lose the rights and it'll go back to Marvel. That either means one of two things. Either that it's being a little bit more financial driven than it ever was before. Right. Um, and that they think they can really, like, they've proven they've been able to get away with it before, thus now they think they can get away with murder. And right. just really just keep churning out the same stuff and thus will go around in much shorter spurts. Second reason, uh, which actually I think is a little bit more likely, at least it's finances are going to vary from person to person, human being to human being. But of course, uh, the information age is kind of true for all of us. If we are all exposed to the same stuff all the time, uh, then I actually think that the density at, of which, at which we, we consume media these days, um, it, it's kind of so compacted in such a short time frame that you might actually get the sense that something that you experienced only five years ago was like a lifetime ago. Well, yeah, because about... you've consumed so much in that time. We, we, we blast through shows right now with binge watching and everything. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, yeah, five years ago, sure, that's deep nostalgia for us at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, to kind of broaden it before we wrap up the topic, like, look at Facebook and this I, memories area. Yeah, yeah, This yeah. idea that they want you to look back, but Facebook's only been around like a decade. So yeah. memories are only, like, within years. And it's this idea of reminiscing before you've even gotten far enough to really reminisce. To reminisce on your own. They're, they're marketing your own... Uh your own reminiscence. <laughs> right, well, and it's, they're creating nostalgia based on your own memories that are not that old. But what about, like, there's certain, like, curious things that are, are happening. Like, one of the things, Alien Covenant, a lot of the, the hubbub around it is that it's going to remake the Alien series. Uh, like, going back to Alien. in this one. <laughs> but... It's Ridley Scott again. I mean, he's, he's coming back. I mean, he's doing another Alien. Yeah, yeah, but he did the last Nightmare. That was terrible. Prometheus? Yes, which was awful. And which that was Ridley wasn't Scott. quite an Alien, though. He didn't want to make it just a blatant Alien Don't movie. get me started on this. That was the but, Alien movie that's really not an Alien movie, but that really is an Alien yes. movie. It literally is for Alien fans all around, and it was a craptastic uh, fest. But yeah. the next piece is supposed to be the new like, gold standard of the series. The new invention of the series. Well, he's welcome to try, but I'll tell you this, 
Once again, I was quite satisfied with the existing franchise. I even started to really... The end of that franchise was not terribly high. I, lo I love Alien, and I love Aliens. Those are great films. I think it's actually a miracle that James Cameron was able to do what he did, but not having the, the same directorial style as Ridley Scott with Aliens. He just took it in a slightly different direction, and I think it accomplished uh, the perfect thing you'd want from a sequel. I'm actually going to say that specific thing because I think this is so important because sequels, especially since it was not the same writer, you know, of that script, then what did James Cameron's accomplish? Well, some people might say, oh, well, it wasn't as full of horror as uh, the first film. Well, I think that's false, but you might say because of the, the silliness involving, you know, the Marines and everything, but I think that's just the thing that makes it amazing is because the whole thing about the Alien 1 was that it was fear. Fear in the, in the depths, in the wilderness, and you're in the middle of space, no one is there to help you. So now, what will really ramp up the, the uh, terror of this alien? It will be when there's people to help you. When you, the whole, the Marines are there, right? It seems like you are in a safe place. Like, like she's, she's got this made. She just has to sit back and let the Marines do their thing. Well, surprise, Wrong. surprise, they don't. And sooner or later, she finds herself in the exact same situation, just as full of terror as the first. That's how you make a sequel. Now they just make sequels to make sequels. Well, yeah, and I think, I think that's the biggest problem with nostalgia at the end of the day, regardless of whether it stands up or not, is you're being forced to react before you can even react. This idea that yeah. you're given a reaction and a thought process to engage in before you've even engaged. Yeah. You're like, we knew this album was 80s, we engaged in it, and then we went, oh, yeah, it is 80s, and then we listened to it, and it was 80s. Furthermore, like, look at the distance of those sequels back then. Aliens came seven years after the first I film. I, now they have to be on, like, three-year three, to, three -year cycles. I think we're hitting a redundancy period, and I think that's what's really the problem with the, the nostalgia here is that it's just becoming redundant. So composition or not, we're hitting a wall of redundancy that's just kind of breaking us down. Yeah, a wall of redundancy. I think that's the best way to put it. That's what I've been kind of arguing one might even say campaigning <laughs> against to those who, who will listen for a very long time it's not at least the last five-ish yeah, years i don't know a part of me <laughs> almost is getting the impression that like everyone had started to agree on this notion before they all sort of split apart again yeah. because they always split apart whenever it's something they care about if it's yeah. something they care about then they want to see it again they want of course they want to see there's it investment done. yeah there's investment and so, so i that cough. yeah cough. well it's at this point that i i felt like we were all just we kind of all gave up on that notion and, and, and as a result are validating the first of those two things. In yeah. other words, the fact that finances really can get away with murder because we will fall into the same exact cycles. It's just very disappointing that no one along this entire, uh, you know, create media and consume media spectrum has the self-awareness to say, really, well, <laughs> really, think, are we doing this? I think people do. Uh, a person does but people don't is the problem uh, i would the just masses. Uh, fulfillment it doesn't feel fulfilling and that's the the, the, big, the biggest problem i could lob at it I, I agree all right let's uh let's let's chat steve's musical term of the week and then steve's gonna tell us what we're doing next week because it's just a little bit different and it's not steve's pick that is true music term of the week i said a couple weeks back that we wouldn't be expecting a lot of uh english or british terms in this segment because England was kind of a light player for most of the centuries when music notation terminology was being developed and standardized. Well, you'd think you couldn't get any more British than the terms minims, crotchets, and quavers. It's a horrible uh, British it's accent. It's a horrible British accent, yeah. Crotchets, well, at least that one. But even crotchet, believe it or not, wasn't able to get away with this, is actually from the old French, because 
English English as a language is just this big mishmash of other languages, even if you go back a thousand years. Lightly uh, the Romance languages, but mostly the Germanic. Yeah. 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 But um, but again, lots of French there because France That's a romance ruled... language. I'm saying. Oh yeah, right, yeah, yeah of there course. You go. But a little specific, bit of more French than anything else. Gaelic shows up once in a while. France ruled England. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> for like 300 Brief years. Briefly for England. Yeah, 300. But then there was like a period where like they kind of ruled themselves, but then they had to pay homage to the king. Anyway, 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 they got over that. Croc is actually what it's from in French. It means hook, and of course, crotchet came from croc, and there's a hook in a quarter note. That's all it is. It's just a quarter note. You put a dot on on a uh, on a staff paper on uh, either on a line or a space, and then you add a little line next to it, and that's sort of a hook. It's not actually hooking quite yet, because actually a quaver really has a little bit more of a hook. But still, it's hook enough, and that's what a quarter note is called in the British music notation still to this day. They call them crotchets. Interesting. We call them quarter notes, and actually most other uh, nations call them quarter notes. Pretty so they're sure. just continuing to be stubborn. Continuing seems, to be stubborn. Seems to work out for them pretty well. <laughs> That's true. I'll, I'll also add minim. Minim is from minima. Minima, maybe. That's from Catalan, French, and Spanish. And minima me- meant white. White from white notation, an older form of notation, also called menstrual notation. It's a very early system where notes were filled in, uh, weren't filled in, rather. It just had space in the middle. So currently the half note which is the minimum in the British, is the only note that has no No. space filled in the middle. And it's also the shortest note possible that doesn't fulfill the measure, which actually makes it a fairly long note in the grand scheme of things. Do you want to know what quaver is? No, we're good. Quaver comes from the (laughs) archaic uh, singing in trills, kind of like quiver. Eh? And that's why quaver is the fastest of the bunch. Quaver is uh, half of a crotchet. So there are two crotchets in a minimum and two quavers in a crotchet. (laughs) God, your accent doesn't get better with No, I thought it got better there. I I know, I disagree. I feel like you gotta sit with it for a while. It's like But they also had like weird weird like not base ten monetary styles as well from way back when with shillings and things like that. And if you go read Harry Potter, like there's like X number of nuts in a whatever the thing is, and then X number of whatever things in a galleon and like like none of them are base ten, and the I math love is those really old hard. systems. It's so hard. I don't. I like to be able to count it on my fingers and toes. Like, well, that's that's. You need more fingers zero, and toes. Well, add a zero. Move decimal points. That's why we have the metric system? It's not even based off of like one half, one quarter, one eighth. It's like seventeen of something equals one of another thing. No, like the stone, right? The stone's just a weird. Yeah, weird. whatever. Whatever stone you happen to be using as your. Uh, as well, a standard. I, I think I'm around six stone or eight stone or something like that, but I never did a conversion the correct way. Well, just to put a bow on this, uh, guess what? Quaver one. That's actually British. At least All I right. can't find the any connecting etymology. It seems to have always been British. Interesting. Um, which means it was once Anglo-Saxon. And then you run into oh, yeah, problems. No, but no, at that no, point, no. at that point, you pretty much yeah. they 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 have owned it. Yeah. All right. Well, Steve, thank you for that education as always. You're welcome. Now tell us what we're doing next week. Next week, we are doing Drunk by Thundercat. Oh, Thundercat. He was on the Flying Lotus album we did, the second one. Yes, he was on. Yeah, well, guess what? Flying Lotus is going to be on Thundercat. Uh, He's going to be on Drunk. Along with a lot of other people. I saw some crazy names here, like Michael McDonald coming out of his slumber to uh, do a couple tracks. He's never stopped performing. True. I don't hear of him lately. Yeah, I think. Well, he hasn't been in a movie lately, but I think he's always I don't hear him lately, thus he doesn't exist. Oh, right, of course. We talked about that. You're the same person who didn't know that Steve Martin's been playing banjo for the last two decades. No. 
I, I knew that. Not not to the seriousness that yeah. I discovered as mm-hmm. when we did episode 83, Love Has Come For You by Steve Martin and E. Brickell. Anyway, um, and who brings us this request? Who brings us this request? A very old guest of ours, Devin Jackson Mullen of Anxious Kids Make Good People. And not AKA, old AKA, in his AKA, AKA MGP. Not old as in age, but old as in he was on a, an episode many moons ago. Two years ago in episode 141. So not quite two years ago. So when we get to episode 241, it will be two years. This is why we like to have exactly 50 episodes in a year. It's very easy. Well, Devin, Uh, thank you for the recommendation. Um, I had actually considered choosing that album just because the album cover caught my attention and I remembered Thundercat because he was some of the more interesting stuff from that Flying Lotus album. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're eager to take that on. um, I'll give you one little stinger for it. Lots of tracks, very short, much like... Our dear old Flying Lotus. All right. Which we've reviewed twice now. Yes. And now we'll be reviewing a third time, technically. Technically, technically. All right. Well, on that note, that trepidatious and possibly horrifying note, Ah. uh, remember, as always, music is life. And and life life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.